here's something to uh, remember about uh, Prince Philip. Now that he has passed, you know, perhaps, as he believes, he may be reincarnated. And as he stated in an interview in uh, 1998, if he, want, if he was going to be reincarnated, he'd like to come back as a uh, disease. <laughs> in the event that I'm reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus to contribute something to solving overpopulation. Uh, here is uh, his royal virus, Prince Philip, in 1984, saying that human populations, it's reaching, it's reaching plague proportions. What do you think are the most serious issues faced by conservationists and World Wildlife Fund over the next 20 years or so? 95% of the whole of the uh, Atlantic rainforest in Brazil has, has disappeared in the last 100 years. There is simply nowhere for these animals to live. At the basis of it all is this colossal increase in the human population. It's one of, of, the, of the living species of the planet, but it's, it's reaching plague proportions. Humanity is a plague. You heard it from his mouth. I love animals. I love the rainforest. I want to see conservation efforts move forward. There's a distinct difference between I love animals, I don't want their homes destroyed, and humanity is a plague. But Prince Philip makes that leap. Here he is talking about what should be done with overpopulation. It's time to read between the lines and pay attention to the subtext of exactly what he's saying here. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Because if where we are, there's nothing else. And do you have views about what should be done about that? Not your guess. Uh, well, it could be on a on a spectrum from mass sterilisation to no, no, uh, to to uh, you know greater availability of contraception. I don't know. I don't know what your views are as to what can be done about it. Well, I think I think uh, it might be described as voluntary family limitation. Yes, voluntary family limitation. Yes, just just voluntarily limit your family. It's fairly simple. You can just limit your family. Has your family been limited yet? Perhaps I will limit your family for you. Every one of these guys. I mean, it's a direct line between these people, people like John Kerry, who, you know, I've got to go, uh, I've got to protect the environment. None of you can drive cars. I'll continue to fly around the world in my private jet to accept accolades for my work saving the environment. But <laughs> it's different for people like me. Oh, you need to limit your family. Your family needs to be limited. I'll continue to have children. I'll continue to destroy the world. I'll continue to act imperialistically in every country on Earth. But you must limit your family. Don't have children. What are you, selfish? I'll have the children. You don't have them. And it's really amazing. It's just like, uh, what do you think the biggest problem we face is? Uh, there's too many people. Well, what should we do about it? Can't you guess? Can't you guess what I think should be done? chair. This might even be a show that you might want to consider taking a nap on or giving you some snacks. I don't really know how long the shows are when they're done until Archie finishes them up. So 
I do know just by looking at this and how many days it's taken me that this is going to be a very long one. So you might want to jot down a few timestamps as you're going along here. First, let me start off with this quote because I have so much, I have been able to in this one show confirm just about everything I've been talking about. Why do I think it's the Jews? All that kind of stuff. So first, let me start off with this quote. I found this interesting quote, and I don't know, maybe I'm being overly hopeful. Maybe I'm thinking that people are actually seeing what's going on. There's this man called Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. Who is he? Well, he was born in October of 1945, commonly known as Lula, L-U-L-A. He is a Brazilian politician and former union leader who served as the 35th president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010. He was a founding member of the Workers' Party and ran unsuccessfully for president three times before achieving victory in the 2002 Brazilian general election. So he was re-elected in 2006, and um, what he did during his time in office was Lula introduced sweeping social programs about for the family and the poor to combat poverty. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to be making any cracks because I don't know. I'm hoping that this is sincere, right? But before I get to that, nobody loves a backstory more than I do, right? <laughs> So a little bit more about Lula. Lula had little formal education. He did not learn to read until he was 10 years old and quit school after the second grade to work and help his family. His first job at age 12 was as a shoe shiner and street vendor. By 14, he had a formal job in a warehouse. Lula lost his little finger on his left hand when he was 19 in an accident while working as a press operator in an automobile parts factory. After the accident, he had to run to several hospitals before he received medical attention. This experience increased his interest in participating in the workers' union. And around that time, he became very involved and had several posts. So let me quote what, what Lula had to say. And I will quote it directly through without yapping in between so you can hear the whole quote in context. And I'll also publish this quote over on the website because it's worth taking a closer look at again. So the quote is from Lula. Without being radical or overly bold, I will tell you that the Third World War has already started. A silent war. Not that for a reason any of the less sinister. This war is tearing down Brazil, Latin America, and particularly and practically all of the Third World. Instead of soldiers dying, there are children. Instead of millions of wounded, there are millions of unemployed. Instead of destruction of bridges, there is the tearing down of factories, schools, hospitals, and entire economies. It is a war by the United States against the Latin America continent and the third world. It is a war over the foreign debt, one which has its main weapon, interest. A weapon more deadly than the atom bomb, more shattering than a laser beam. So I certainly hope that that is for real. Okay, so I'm going to have a few things over the website for you to take a look at, psychopathinyourlife.com. And um, California is now talking about buying out the farmers to deal with the water issues. Um, yeah, it is just a hot mess, right? I think I might have some links to look at the water. I don't remember. But anyway, so yeah, now they're moving towards solar buying it all out right well what, what's happened over the years is you know 
small farmers have been squeezed out and this will be probably the last push to get rid of them right so anyways you know and because we're always talking about wars and money in this culture right here's what just kind of what i've been thinking about i don't believe that where we came from we engaged in murder or really knew about money and i think we had no experience in that and I think it was how they were able to really trap us even more readily because we were, we were, we didn't know. Why would we have known all this stuff, right? Um, but, but when they introduced the money, we also, as a society, agreed to the murder part, right? Because they put the murder thing out there with the wars. I, I see wars as murder, right? Um, well, they put the wars out there and everybody is now convinced that some wars are okay. You hear it in people's languages. They'll say, well, I'm totally, I'm totally anti-war. I'm a Democrat. And then the next breath, they say, but some wars are necessary. See how that slippery slope gets in there? Well, you know, we spend over 50% of our tax dollars in this country promoting war. So I don't know. I think that they pretty much had to get everybody so ignorant in this country that all this stuff seemed to be okay, right? So, um, you know, and I, I still... And kind of, well, this whole thing over the fake money, okay? Because a lot of people have been making what I would view as some pretty, um, well, pretty interesting choices that you might want to consider, okay? Because I see money as the work of the devil, right? And let's, let's call a spade a spade. And um, all this grasping at it, the levels people will go to to get more of it. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty crazy. And I think that, um, I don't know. And so in this show, I've been able to pull together... How did we get these ideas? And more importantly, who did we get them from? Well, we got them from the Jews, okay? We got them from the Ashkenazi Jews. And I can lay out a pretty good case here that this stuff only really did get started about 300 years ago. And also, and it was the Ashkenazi Jews that are at the head of it all. I no longer believe that the Ashkenazi Jews, they're also known as the Zionists, I don't believe that... Um, they even belong in Israel. But hear the story out and come to your own conclusions, okay? Because I see them now as complete interlopers. And how did I get, how, why do I say that so solidly? Well, because I've been tracking diseases. And come to find out, the diseases I've been tracking that have to do with hormone usage and abuse trace to the Ashkenazi Jews. Surprise, surprise. Because you also probably heard me say that I was convinced that they have been doing the original experiments on themselves. And I have complete evidence for that today. Also, you know, we have Black Rock, we have Black Stone. So I broke down exactly who they are. A couple, couple of prominent Jews that are running the world, right? And yeah, so I really took a deep dive into that because, you know, Black Rock, Rock has all the real estate, Blackstone has, you know, I always still get them confused, but one of them owns all the medical stuff. Because um, I've been talking about in the 90s, I said that that was a year that they hooked up all the medical things together on the internet. Well, an interesting thing happened around that time with this group of medical people. <laughs> and that group is now owned by the black group, right? Which ties into, I will be getting into it today, but there's also a group called the Black Nobility. Now, those people were roaming around Africa mid-1800s and robbing that country of 80% of control. So that I need to get to later. Way too much for today. But anyway, so I have files. I took a deep dive into those noses they have. You know, the nose on their face, N-O-S-E. Yeah, um, 
<laughs> there's more to those noses than I ever imagined, right? I started looking at why do some of these statues have their noses broken off? Well, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting story. And I took another look at circumcision. Why is this country the number one place for circumcision. Now, I have talked about circumcision in my lead-up to being suspicious of the Jews and all of this, right? Well, interestingly enough, when you look at it again, right? Because why in all of Africa is Nigeria doing these circumcisions? Why is the United States doing them all? Well, some interesting stories, and I think the circumcision has to do with a transference of energy toward the satanic side. It's, it's, it's a crazy story, okay? Um... I've also looked at the Jesuits and the Jews, the KKK. What do they all share together? Well, a whole heck of a lot of stuff, right? And in the past, I don't know if I've mentioned this or not, but I have been suspicious about the word hospital, okay? Where did that get cooked up? I knew it kind of happened with the group in Malta. And um, Malta was where the word originated from. Malta was where the eugenics got cooked up, so... <laughs> So I have stuff on that. And then I also have Turkey during the Ottoman thing. Possibly, possibly, these Ashkenazi Jews were in Ottoman, and then they fanned out from there. And they possibly could have been a group of Jews, and they split off into the Ashkenazi ones. But I kind of pretty well traced back the last 300 years or so. Um, and, you know, white slaves, I mean, <laughs> they have a history of slaves now, don't they? Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting look at all that. And I've also asked our show producer, Archie, to introduce himself toward the end. So we got a pretty full show here. I would suggest you jot things down as you go along because, you know, we're not going to date stamp it for you. You can do that on your own uh, because there is just a lot. And I am bringing you everything I've been blobbing about, pulled it together in one big package, and I'll be back later with the black nobility part. But anyways... Take a breath, kids. We're on for a wild ride here, so buckle up, buttercups. I will be covering more about Black Rock and Black Stone along in these segments here. But I ran across an article that is just too good to pass up that capsulates this, okay? And I like their writing style. It had me laughing. You know, always good to have a little bit of humor when the world is collapsing, right? Okay. So, it was from one year ago. Let me scroll up here and see. Um, October 25th, 2021. Person named Azal McCall. Okay. The title is... Because, well, you'll figure out more about BlackRock and then later. Because the goal here is to identify who the very top is or who is the toppest one of them all, right? Okay, so let's start with BlackRock. BlackRock, the secret company that owns the world. And it said hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening. Remember, this was a year ago. I've been talking about ducking for cover and investing in beans and rice for a couple of years now. Okay, let me read it here. And I... The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Inflation is here to stay. It wasn't transitory. It never was. Now we're on the brink of economic collapse, the likes of which we haven't seen since 2008. It turns out printing one-fourth of the total money supply in a matter of months isn't a good idea. Who knew? 
<laughs> to make matters worse, the company secretly pulling the strings behind everything is about to take center stage. Enter BlackRock, the company that owns you and you don't even know it. Why you should be scared of BlackRock. Founded by Larry Fink, a well-known Jew, I added the Jew part, <laughs> In 1988, BlackRock is the most powerful Wall Street fund in the world with $9 trillion worth of assets under management. That's larger than the gross domestic product, or GDP, of every single country around the globe, with the exception of China and the United States. If you were to make $1 every second, you'd be worth as much as BlackRock in about 240,000 years. I know you're sick of it. There are plenty of companies and powerful people that have enough blood money to grind everyone into a paste. But here's why you should be particularly scared about BlackRock. And they quoted this tweet and it says, the enslavement plan, print tons of money. Number two, tax, tax you on unrealized gains from numbers go up. That's happening all over because they're pumping out money escalating real estate. Well, the, the whole goal is to ta tax, right? <laughs> Number three, claiming you are using it to create infrastructure jobs. Number four, get your reliant on government assistance. Number five, raise tax in unrealized gains. Hint, if they cared, they would tax BlackRock. <laughs> okay, BlackRock's absurd liquidity means that if you look at if you look at just about every major publicly traded company in the world, you'll find that BlackRock is its first, second, or third largest shareholder. Go ahead, try it. Now with that out of the way, let's talk about why you shouldn't be scared of BlackRock. You should be terrified. What BlackRock does is terrifying. If you put the three asset management firms together, being BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, they control a collective of $15 trillion. That's roughly 70% of the USA GDP. But this isn't why you should be terrified of BlackRock. You should be terrified because they are the linchpin between Wall Street and Washington, D.C. During the 2008 housing crisis, when the government bailed out the too big to fail giants like Lehman Brothers, Citigroup, AIG, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, who do you think the Federal Reserve hired to clean up the mess? You guessed it, BlackRock. And then they have a quote here, it says, um, prior to the financial crisis, I was not even familiar with the name, but in the years after the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008, BlackRock appeared everywhere, everywhere, said Heike Butchner, German financial correspondent covering Wall Street for over a decade. What made all this worse is that BlackRock held significant shares in the exact institutions they were helping bail, bail out. In finance, we call this circular ownership. I just call it horseshit economics. <laughs> BlackRock also owns part of CNN and Fox, meaning they can unilaterally influence bipartisan information flow. Oh, and they manipulate what we will buy, sell, consume, and even when we decide to live even where we decide to live. They own our politicians. According to William D. Cohen, author of the best-selling House of Cards, 
BlackRock's founder, Larry Fink, is like the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain. BlackRock's next big move. As of 2021, at least three executives from BlackRock operate noble, notable positions in President Joe Biden's cabinet. In fact, since BlackRock, BlackRock has had a habit of creating shadow cabinets before presidential transitions, they've been unofficially named as the fourth branch of government by the media and those in the financial industry. The reason why BlackRock is so efficient in helping out governments around the world is they use an extensive te technology program called Aladdin, which operates more than 21.6 trillion assets. That's Aladdin, A-L-A-D-D-I-N, if you want to look further. Okay, the, the deal with Aladdin, Aladdin is approximately 5,000 supercomputers that now act as a central nervous system for the world's most sophisticated investors and asset managers. So what's going to happen next? Cue dramatic end of the world music. Earlier in the pandemic, BlackRock helped the Federal Reserve manage to buy corporate bonds, i.e. when the government buys corporate debt to bail them out. And we'll probably do it again in coming months. My prediction is that after the holidays, the Biden administration and media narrative will shift from COVID-19 to total economic collapse mantra. Americans will be fed up with a disease with a 98% survival rate and when they don't have any money to eat or enough gas to drive up the road. Maybe it won't get that bad. But the reports indicate otherwise, and this was written in October one year ago. Well, actually, <laughs> I'm kind of tired. Yeah, it's been about a year ago. It was actually on October the 25th, 2021. And that's what you might want to know about BlackRock. chat a little bit more about BlackRock and their buddies at Blackstone. And there's a reason for this because A, they're at the head of the chain, and the other reason is this black business, right? Because I happen to find back in the records that a lot of the oppression in Africa started by a group called the Black Nobility. I have all the files on it. Will I get to it in this show? No. Too much work, but any, and too, too, too complicated. Let's get through this part first, okay? Let's understand who the cast of characters here before I tell you what they were, okay? Because they're the same group, okay? Um, anyways, so this article was CEOs Steve Schwartzman and Larry Fink. Those are the two people names you want to look for, okay? Because I kept getting confused between Black Rock and Black Stone, okay? So, um, what they said in this article was that Blackstone's Steve Schwarzman tells the behind-the-scenes story about the similar names. Larry Fink's Black Rock started out as Black Stone, okay? And... So it started out as Blackstone, and then Larry Fink broke off to form a new company. And what they did was this. Fink suggested they use Black Pebble or Black Rock for a name when he branded, branched out on his own. So they ended up calling it 
black stone, but there's also the black rock, okay? And they basically have two different kind of business models since Fink took off, okay? And these do trace back to some pretty high-level Jewish folks, okay? Let's not, let's not split hairs here, okay? They are, in fact, the chosen ones. And here's a problem with being the chosen one, if you happen to be one of those people that thinks you're going to outsmart the rest of us. I may be poor, but I will probably live through eternity, and I don't think your chances are that good if you bought into the satanic part. But anyways, different subject, different time. So... Yeah, I think what's happened is they've gathered up all these things, they've gathered up all these people, and really in the end, it's going to be a crashing kaboom for anybody below them, right? Because here's the deal. If if you were going out and you wanted to go after your enemy, right? And you have to kind of think like these maniacs, right? So if you want to go after your enemy, do you do it when everybody's all agitated and going crazy and suspicious of you? <laughs> of course not. You do it with a smile on your face. You you lull them into a sense of security because you don't want anybody agitated right before you attack them, right? Because which, what they're looking to do is to do a solid to the back attack. And that's how they always operate. They do signaling to let us know what's ahead. And the majority of people just bleep right past it, right? And then when they do what they've signaled they're going to do, it is the sharpest, most vicious attack to the back, right? And then everybody runs around, oh, how this happened? Well, if we would be paying attention to them versus the fools on social media, people might have noticed this stuff, right? So anyway, so I'm buzzing along and... I don't normally lose files, okay? Sometimes they may just be misplaced, but I've done all this work without a team of research assistants. So, um, so I was thinking, well, how did they, um, how, how they tricked all this, right? How did they, um, so I, I was looking in, the one file that I can't find is the one I've talked about. And in the mid-90s was when they hooked up all the world together with their medical data, okay? So in the mid-90s, they all got together and they all planned this out and, and it's all, coordinated, right? Because that's really thrown a lot of people off. And I mentioned this in the past. People will say things like, well, you must be crazy because you really think everybody conspired to get this thing going. Well, yeah, I, I do think they did because I found the data to prove it. So when I was doing that data, one of the people that I found, what happened in the, what happened early on was, let me just give you a recap. What happened early on when they, they've been doing all this consolidation over time, right? And this consolidation is to firm up their upper echelons, right? And, you know, all this buying out and all this kind of stuff. So all this consolidation is going on. Well, what happened was there's a company called Team Health. And Team Health was one of the front leaders in getting doctors all organized. And it became like pretty much kind of like an agency for doctors. So by that move, they were able to control the fees for doctors and all this other kind of crazy stuff and abusive medical billing. <laughs> so, yeah, so Team Health came out really high on top of this whole medical deal, right? Well, I was buzzing along and I found out that just a few years ago, who bought Team Health? <laughs> well, Blackstone. <laughs> so, you know, now Blackstone has, you know, our housing market, they have our medical market. So yeah, they're, they're a pretty significant group. So if I was looking to be on the lead satanic team, I would probably say that, um, yeah, this Black Rock, Blackstone, and probably a reason why they call it Black, okay? But I'll get back to that later because that's a very interesting story and it involved more oppression in Africa. Once again, Africa is getting hit by these people, right? So yeah, it was how they controlled 80% of the market there with this black nobility group. So anyways, let me not jump ahead there. So um, 
so, you know, they took down the economy in 2008. They put Larry Fink in charge, um, and they consolidated all this stuff, and so they came out on top. Black Rock and Black Stone. So don't overlook the significance of this. Um, Black Rock is mostly a traditional asset manager, which mostly deals in the mutual funds, ETFs, fixed income assets, risk management, and etc. It caters to all types of investors, ranging from retail investors to pension funds or other financial institutions. On another hand, Blackstone is purely an alternative asset manager, which deals in private equity, real estate, and hedge funds, and caters to only high net worth individuals and financial institutions who can commit a large money of a large amount of money and for a longer period. Blackstone doesn't cater to retail investors due to the nature of its business. It is only close-ended funds with average total life of a fund around 10 years. Blackstone AUM is around $350 billion, which stands, I, I don't, that number doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, so here's how the pecking order is going, okay? Because what happened was, you know, when this hit, um, well, really, it really started with the Wuhan military games march, okay? Let's call a spade a spade. That's when they announced this New World Order thing. Go look up Wuhan military games. It happened on October or so of 2019. Well, it's the biggest transfer of wealth in the history, right? So what the whole, how, this is just a nutshell because this is, you know, I have other things that I'm more concerned about. But um, what they did was this. They flushed all this money into the economy. And that's how they flushed all of the um, supply chain issues going, right? Well, the effort was to flush all the money into their pockets. And as it worked out, they dribbled a little bit of money into our pockets and even like stiffed us on just a few hundred dollars. These people, it's all about going into their pockets. So if you're making any kind of deals with these people, I would always keep that in mind, right? Because that's they have to have it all, okay? That, that's how psychopaths operate with their control, and how they operate, right? So of course they're going to be nice and kind and act like, oh yeah, we're just we're, we're just your friends. Come invest with us, right? So I believe they're gathering up their own troops now because here's the deal. So they flush out all this money to the economy. Well, most of us in this country don't have much money, right? So of course that money got spent by people immediately. Well, unfortunately, a large portion of the population got caught up in the YouTube pump and dump game with all the stocks, the uh, Robin Hood and all of that. So that's how they clawed back a lot of that money, okay? And sadly, those people are going to be even worse shape, okay? Because now I spent all that money on this work and food, right? You know, to store. But anyway, so sadly, they use that to pump and dump the money back. They're always clawing the money back is how it works, right? So they dribbled some money out to the rest of us. Then they put all their YouTube and social media scam artists out. They're all over, you know, TikTok, all over the place. They, they put all their scam artists out to skim the money, right? So they were basically clawing the money back at that point. So here's why I think they're going to be interesting when they start to consolidate within themselves, so to speak. Because what did that trigger? Well, it triggered a that increased demand for consumer goods, TVs, all that kind of stuff, right? I certainly wasn't buying any of that kind of stuff. I was certainly more invested in beans and rice. <laughs> so, so it created all this demand. And 
it was really pent up demand. It wasn't a bunch of people like they're trying to represent it, making crazy decisions. It was people are just have done without for so long in this country that it it, it created a pent up demand. Okay, so so then they claw back that money through social media with Robin with uh, Robin Hood and all the little games they've been pulling. Well, now the retailers they just announced this week because retailers have way too much inventory. Well, how they get too much inventory? Well, because they were basing their inventory to come in based on that escalated consumer demand, right? <laughs> so, um, so they base their projections. Never assume because they're a psychopath that they're smart, right? And make you smart business decisions because greed and I think when you have decided and accepted this concept that you're one of the chosen ones, you know, like the Larry Finks of the world and stuff, or you're their buddy and you're going to go along with them. I think it really has a very fogging, fogging impact on people's brains. And some people may be coming out of it, and some people may not. But I think it really, when you think that you're so much better than everybody else, it fogs how you think about things, right? So yeah, so now the retailers are all overloaded with merchandise. Well, what's that going to mean? Well, more harm to the working class, because those are probably the worst kind of jobs that fast food and retail stores, right? So those people are going to be going laid out, because now these fools have way too much inventory. So now they're stuck with a with a you know ton ton and ton of inventory, right? And now, so where does the consumer shifting of money start, right? Well, only a few weeks ago they started jacking up the oil prices, right? And that's all. That's a scam. I don't. If I have to explain it to you, you haven't been paying attention, okay? <laughs> so what they did a couple of weeks ago, right when their buddies in retail were getting all these massive amounts of inventory in. They started escalating the wars with diesel because, remember, all those goods those retailers are now holding get traveled to us by diesel trucks, right? So, yeah, they've been playing with the diesel prices, and then they um, have put the, all their buddies into quite a position because um, now consumer spending has completely started to shift, okay? And the working poor now see the, the writing on the wall that I am not buying a $20 bath towel from Target when I need to feed my family and pay now $10 a gallon, roughly exaggerated, but you know what I mean, to get to, get to my low, lousy little job, right? So what they did by the oil thing was they shifted consumer spending. Well, why are they shifting consumer spending that way? Well, could be a few reasons, and I'm not going to get into wild conspiracies, but this is seriously what I think is going on, right? Well, by that move in shifting consumer spending, what they've done is they now have funneled all of the money to the oil industry, okay? <laughs> so, so whoever reigns that liquid gold seems to be pretty close to the top of their chain. And so, yeah, so I think it's a move to kind of it could be a move to out of ignorance to start with by ordering all that extra inventory, thinking, hey, good, look at what we sold from all these people all this time. And the reality of the other part of the team jacked up the gas prices. So what's that going to do to the satanic team that's holding all this merchandise? Well, sadly, they're going to be laying a lot of people off. So it's going to impact a lot of people, but not them. So the good news is they torch themselves with a whole bunch of inventory and I'm sure these greedy psychopaths would rather have that cash in their little greedy hands so they've torched themselves with a lot of inventory so that's going to mean they're going to have a lot of warehouse it's going to compound their own problems which certainly does not make me feel sad okay 
what makes me feel sad is the impact it's going to have on the working class. So I think they really used this thing and kind of interwove it around, right? So the oil thing came out of Ukraine, right? Because and, and then all the scrambling because now that they've discovered that oh well, gee, the oil from Russia is going into India to process it and then coming to the United States. See, this is what it is. It they've created this triangulated thing that in so many different directions, so they can always blame it on. Oil, right? Bingo. Top of the chain. Oil always seems to get it. Well, why is that? Well, because I would say the echelons of people here we're looking at control the oil, right? Because they could be setting the rest of their buddies in retail up because certainly they bought the plan because they bought a lot of merchandise, which they're now stuck with, right? I believe they might play a lot of games with each other, like tag, you're it. Hey, I, I blew out a deal against you. You know, these people are pretty twisted, so... That would be my consideration, is the push has been to control it all through the oil funnel. And that seems pretty simple to me. So, But anyway, the whole idea of sharing what I'm thinking about is for you to also click on your thinking hat. I think oil is the head of the snake here. So we will see. We will see. In the end, there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering. But if you hold on to the money that you have a little bit longer, they're going to be flushing out some deals like crazy soon. Because I worked in imports from China for a few years and you don't want to be stuck with a lot of inventory because there's just so many costs that go along with all that stuff so there's a reason why you want to unload your inventory at the end of the season I mean I would unload inventory part of your job was you know you do the sales you get the inventory and then the next step you're on the phone <laughs> making deals to call your inventory and I was that person so yeah so that's exactly how the retail chain will be working so did they set up the retail people to be stuck with all this inventory? Hey, who knows? When you make a deal with the devil, you gotta you gotta watch out because every step could turn around and backlash on you, right? So be careful of who you align yourself with out there, kids. Be careful of all of it. Be careful who you trust. You know that thing on your face? <laughs> We've been so programmed that um, talking about Jewish notice, noses is like anti-Semitic, right? Well, I believe they're proud of their noses. And let me tell you <laughs> what I know about noses. It's kind of an interesting story. And why did I look into noses? Well, it's obvious Jewish people have big noses, okay? Um, and they've been, you know, there's been a lot of cultural jokes about it. I'm, I'm not ever saying that joking about somebody's physical appearance is ever a good idea because just because somebody has a Jewish nose, A, doesn't mean they're a psychopath, and B, doesn't mean that, you know, they're not okay with being Jewish, right? So, you know, this isn't a segment to try to criticize somebody's features. And here's why um, I started looking into noses. <laughs> <laughs> what I started noticing on all these statues, okay, because remember, they make the statues, they paint those paintings, you know, they paint it in that Habsburg jaw, <laughs> they do these things, okay, I didn't do them, you didn't do them, they did these things, right, so I found it curious, um, the noses that I see in these old paintings that are huge, 
And I started noticing that a lot of their, you know, those phony plaster statues they have all the other, all over the place, they say came from thousands of years ago. Well, a lot of those pieces seem to have broken off noses. And that got my attention. Why do these statues have broken noses? I know, I know, I know. I come up with some weird ideas. <laughs> but anyway, so I was actually kind of amazed to find out why they had their noses hacked off, right? So anyway, so let me tell you how I got there, okay? And we're going to learn a new word today, kids. <laughs> the new word is uh, physiogomical. P-H-Y-S-I-O-G-N-O-M-I-C-A-L. And you can rely on me to mispronounce it every time I say it in this segment. Okay. Physiognomical. What does that mean? A person's facial features or expression, especially when regarded as indication of character or ethnic origin. Okay. Now, will it be in these segments? I don't really know yet, but... Um, by the path that I have these people traveling through, um, uh, you know, Ottoman Empire, they had white slaves. So, yeah, th there's been a lot of uh, intermingling of things. But one thing that is said pretty consistent has been the nose, especially when you look at the leading rulers and the people they show us in paintings and stuff, right? Um, so, anyways, the hooked Jewish nose remained an identifiable touch point for the next several centuries finding its way into portrait texts, physiognomical literature, and medical writings. Portrait technique guided artists, excuse me, portraiture technique guided artists, oh, portraiture technique guided artists on how to create the Jewish nose, paying special attention to the hook. They say that, um, I'll just explain what this kind of literature is. It, this physiognomical literature outlined the supposed link between appearance and character with heavy, heavy emphasis on the platonic principles of Calgachan. It's the morally best, the most beautiful, the morally worst, the most deformed. By these standards, ugly Jewish noses marked ugly Jewish character as intended. Well, not, not everybody on the internet is a fan of the Jew, okay? There's a lot of, if you start to look down some of these websites and stuff, you'll get it too. Um, but... They're looking at it from a different perspective than I am, okay? Because a lot of people see that Jews run things, but they're not really totally clear about how, why. And they all want to hook it on the Rothschilds, right? So it wasn't just about the size. Late 18th and 19th century, philosophical tests go into great detail about noses, given how prominent and visible they are in the face. Roman and aquiline noses, both large, were good. Jewish large noses, however, with their large downward hooks and convex nasal bridges were bad because, of course, Jews were bad. So the traits associated with their associated noses were likewise problematic. Medical lit literature got in on the act, offering greater legitimacy to physiognomical claims by, pathologiz by pathologizing the Jewish nose. According to plastic surgeon Beth Priminger in 2001 J Journal of American Medicine article, the Jewish nose became an actual category in the medical literature alongside explanations as how to fix it, thereby further fixing the myth in our collective imaginations. And remember, most of these head surgeons and stuff are also Jews, okay? Just pointing that out. Um, as late as 1996, medical textbooks outlined the exact nature of the Jewish nose 
and the surgical steps that should be taken to cure this problem. A simply ugly nose doesn't require medical attention, and any such intervention would be a mark of frivolity and excess. But a diagnosably Jewish nose has a cure, one that many people turn to over the 20th century. As much as big noses were associated with Jews, so too is rhinoplasty. Rhinoplasty is the surgical thing for getting your nose fixed. Taste in noses, however, is both a function of fashion and politics. In the 19th century, the pug nose associated at the time with the much pillared Irish immigrants to the United States as a way to escape the potato famine was considered at least as bad as a Jewish nose. So in the 19th century, they considered the Irish people, they had pug noses, and it was considered as bad as the Jewish noses, okay? Of all the types of noses, the Jewish nose is the most controversial. This is because if you are a Jew or a descendant of the Jewish community, you probably have this kind of nose, or people will always see it even when it is not there. They also have kind of a distinct way when they fix their noses, I've noticed. But anyway, different subject. If you have it, people always, unless you decide to get a nose job, which is not a good idea because you will be saying you are not proud of your background. See, my whole point of talking about noses today is I 100% believe that they are very proud of their noses, right? It's almost kind of like a logo they wear on their face, okay? And some of them balk and then get plastic surgery, and some of them force the kids to have plastic surgery, and then later the kids may be, you know, sad they got the plastic surgery young because it took away part of their heritage. So noses actually are a pretty big deal um, in identifying people, because I've been identifying how they've moved around by their facial features, which means their noses. Because when you go to Africa, you've got a more flat nose. I've got more of a skinny little European-looking nose. Um, and then you have the Jewish nose, right? Okay, what are Jewish noses? Many people would confuse big nose with Jewish ones. This, however, is not the case. Both the large size and its hooked tip characterize a Jewish type of nose. The nose gets its name from Jews who are also known to have them, like many other people of the Semitic race. However, it is important to note that all not all Jews have this kind of nose. There are hundreds of jokes about Jews and their big noses, which I won't be telling any of them today. <laughs> I get enough comments about <laughs> I have a 4.1 rate, 4.0 rating on um, Apple <laughs> for being a racist. <laughs> I never knew that you could uh, change your review. And somebody wrote a review, I don't know, the last year or so. And uh, I didn't even look at reviews the first several years because I thought that's not a good plan, right? Um, but anyway, somebody wrote a review and they were talking about uh, me being out of control. They first started watching me and they thought that I was interesting. And then they realized I need psychiatric help. <laughs> and I'm just paraphrasing and making a joke out of it. And then they uh, they actually amended their, their review in the last few months. Now, why you would keep watching somebody you thought all these real things about is, is a mystery to me. But anyways, <laughs> they amended their um, their review. It's, it's there on Apple Podcasts. You can go look at it. Um, it says they, they amended it, and it says something like, um, now she's a full-on racist. Can't anybody stop her? <laughs> well, the system is a little harder to catch me on audio, okay? So anyway, so. <laughs> Considering the Jews on YouTube, this show wouldn't have lasted very long there. But anyway. um, 
This is interesting. The perception has been cultivated over hundreds of years. It begins from the period of the Roman Empire to the days of Shakespeare. In Hitler's Holocaust, it was still an issue, and today it does not seem to end. Ethnic hatred and prejudice towards a Jew, however, fuel these perceptions. Um, and I don't know if I will get to it later, but you know what I find curious about the Jew thing is that... Um, you know, there is no um, forced literature that kids must be taught in school about, oh, I don't know, little things like, you know, how they took over the Indians and slaughtered them all. There's no forced education to keep those historical facts straight, right? It has been moved into, oh, look, we had a great time. We took over the Indians. They gave up some beads for all this land. And look, we all sat down and had dinner. So let's call it Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that... Uh, the Jew thing has been around for a long time, and we and so let me get back to what, where I was heading there. So what I found curious, okay, there's no structured way that students should be taught about Indian history in this country, right? There's no structured way that children should be taught about oh a lot of things. I never read about orphan trains when I was in school, but who has structured learning? Well, interestingly enough. In over, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 states in this country, they have forced Holocaust training, which means that the Holocaust Museum has cooked up this deal and schools will then teach the authorized Jewish Holocaust training in schools. Now, why is that? Why are they protecting the history of the Jews that way? Why would, why would I get taken down if I went on YouTube and started blabbing about the Ashkenazis and their big hook noses? <laughs> well, because... It's a sensitive subject, right? But it's also interesting because it's something they're very proud of. Maybe they didn't understand that people might come along and some of us would figure out the evil behind them, and I happen to find it kind of amusing. So anyway, but not in a, you know, really joke kind of way. It's, it's amusing that they cling to that nose, that's all. And I'll get to the good part here in a minute. Because remember, all those statues seem to be missing their noses. And for a while, I thought that maybe those statues, because I look at a lot of data throughout the day, right? And I started thinking, why am I looking at pictures with people having their nose hacked off in statues? <laughs> um, because at first, I thought, well, probably because the nose is a very vulnerable part on a statue, right? It sticks out, just like the ears. When I used to sell vintage, I would always look for chips on the nose area of the ears, because that's where you're going to get hit first. So, for the longest time, I thought that the noses being missing on these statues had to do with just some common chips and things, right? But that didn't end up turning out to be true. <laughs> and noses ended up being kind of interesting. So, um, most of them stem from the fact they have extraordinarily big noses. Um, they have sort of, yeah, I've already said all that. Okay, so you look at these statues with the, with the cracked off noses and you think, how'd that happen, right? Okay, this is the good part. Even Christopher Columbus has that huge nose. They all have it. They painted it into all their pictures. Just look at them, okay? Look at the, go through and look at pictures of the, like the U.S. presidents through the history. Just pull up a graph. Just type into Google U.S. presidents and you'll see their noses. <laughs> so here's the explanation about why the noses are hacked off. And it turns out it's on purpose. Now, why are they hacking the noses off of some of these statues? I really don't know, okay? Maybe they went through a phase that they thought, let's hide that this Roman person was really a Jew, so let's cut his nose off. But it's kind of interesting because it said, 
While age and transportation could reasonably explain how a three-dimensional nose might have been broken, it does not necessarily explain why flat reef counterparts were also defaced. <laughs> um, the consistency of the patterns where damage is found in sculpture suggests that it's purposeful. He added that those defacements were probably motivated by personnel, political, and religious reasons. Ancient Egyptians believed a deity's essence could inhabit an image or represent of that deity. There's a lot of power and a lot of magic in all this. The intentional destruction of this depiction then could be seen as having been done to deactivate an image's strength. Interesting, huh? Uh, well, they say these statues go back to the 4th century, but, you know, they're made out of materials that were produced in the last couple hundred years, so I have a great deal of suspicion over them, right? Um, they also explain that um, this guy, Bledberg, also explained how tombs and temples served as a primary reservoir for sculptures and reliefs that held ritual purposes. By placing them in a tomb, for instance, they could feed the dead in the next world. All of See, this is interesting. They believe very much in reincarnation. They just had to trick us into believing that death was final and no reincarnation for us, right? So all of them had to do with the economy as offerings to the supernatural. Egyptian state religion was seen as arrangement where kings on earth provide for the deity, and in return, the deity takes care of Egypt. As such, since statues... Let me scroll down here... Statues and reliefs were a meeting point between the supernatural and this world. Those who wanted the culture to regress would do well by defacing these objects. The damaged part of the body is no longer able to do its job. A statue's spirit can no longer breathe if its nose is broken off, in other words. The vandal is essentially killing the deity seen, seen as vital to Egypt's, Egypt's prosperity. Contextually, this makes a fair amount of sense. If this makes sense, please let me know. <laughs> Statues intended to depict humans making offerings to gods are often found with their, their left arm cut off. Coincidentally, the left arm was commonly known to be used in making offerings. In turn, the right arm of statues depicting a deity receiving offerings is often found damaged as well. See, who knew there was all this stuff about their noses and their arms and those statues? <laughs> um, so anyway, I think that's about it. Um, they said that, uh, let me tell about what the other person said. In the Faroque period, there was a clear understanding of what sculpture was supposed to do, adding that evidence of intentionally damaged mummies spoke to a very basic cultural belief that damaging the image of a person damaged the person represented. Indeed, warriors would often make wax effigies of their enemies and destroy them before battle. Recorded textual evidence also points toward the general anxiety of the time regarding one's own image being damaged. So people were worried about their images being damaged. Gee, who does this sound like? A little nar narcissism going on here? Don't touch my image. <laughs> it wasn't uncommon for pharaohs to decree that anyone threatening their likenesses would be 
terribly punished. So the pharaohs would warn people, don't, don't, don't mess with my likeness, right? <laughs> Rulers were concerned about their historical legacy and the defacing of their statues helped ambitious up-and-comers to rewrite history. In essence, erasing their predecessors so as to cement their own power. That's a very interesting angle, right? And I was just thinking, how their noses get chipped in transport, right? <laughs> okay. Um, this gets a, the ancient Egypts did, however, attempt to minimize even the possibility of this defacement from occurring. Statues were generally positioned in tombs or temples to be safeguarded on three sides. Always at three, right? Of course, that didn't stop those eager to damage them from doing so. They did what they could, says this Bilbert person. It didn't really work that well. So, um, the Metropolitan, this is a funny story about this Metropolitan Museum of, talk about a scam, right? Museums, art shows, famous art. <laughs> okay, um, there's also that financial scam going on now where you can invest in part of uh, part of all these famous paintings and stuff. Good luck with that one. Okay, um, there is a statue uh, of an Egyptian queen dating back to 1353 to 1336 BC. Ultimately, the curator is adamant that these criminal acts weren't the results of low-level hoodlums. The precise chisel work found on many of the artifacts suggests they were done by skilled laborers. They were, they, they were not vandals, this person said. They were not recklessly and randomly striking out at works of art. Often in the Faroque period, it's really only the name of the person who is targeted. In the inscriptions, which could be defaced, this means that the person doing the damage could read. So yeah, uh, I could see that this is a possibility, even, even done on purpose between their generations, right? They didn't like the last group that robbed and tried to kill the rest of us, and so they kind of started defacing them. Like, there, there's certainly a logic here you just can't escape with, right? Imagery in public spaces is a reflection of who has the power to tell the story of what happened and what should be remembered, he said. We are witnessing the empowerment of many groups of people with different opinions of what pro the proper narrative is. In that sense, perhaps a more serious, long-term analysis of our own art, the kinds of messages we put out there, how we express them, and why, is the most important lesson. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I go along with the part about they were intentionally done with, you know, to get the nose off of these sculptures, but the question remains why, because one group that took over from the last group is dogging them by defacing their face by some crazy belief. You know, I believe that probably could be that the case, right? So I, I don't know. I don't know why I find some of these things interesting, but they do have a certain feeling toward those noses, okay? And just go look for yourself. Look at all the old artwork. Look at those noses. Look at Pull up a um, listing of, these things are very easy to find. Just look. Look up all the royal family people. I found a piece that Diana's mother was married to a Jew, and I was looking closer at her nose. Now, they have a lot of ways to hide that with makeup and stuff. And remember, the photographers are all their friends, too. So <laughs> don't forget that part in all this. So anyway, that's all I know about noses for today.
Okay, let's keep talking about noses for a bit here. Why? Well, because I have a um, interest in how they do a continuum of, of things. Like, for example, you know, they supposedly brought people over from Africa. Those people ended up, you know, being ho horribly abused. Um, then the next way they got abused was the Ku Klux Klan, which I'm talking about later. Um, the Ku Klux Klan came in to keep the oppression really whipped up, right? And another thing I noticed was this. We went through a history of the mob. <laughs> Where's the mob from? Mafia. Well, in the, um, excuse me, Italy, right? And because I have also found, now I haven't done any data comparison to how many, but I seem to have been stumbling along a lot of very abusive mental health facilities in Italy. And remember, Italy is the third of the um, control factor here, right? With the Vatican being in Rome. So um, what I started noticing was this. Let's talk about the Mafia. Well, the Mafia was the organization, I don't know if I talk about it more later, but whatever. The Mafia was an organization that flourished until the 90s, okay? And they were robbing people. They were they had their hands at every business in this entire country. Every company in this country was literally paying the Mafia off, right? And it just became one of these things like, oh, they're so powerful, we can't catch them, and they bring in the FBI. <laughs> And the FBI is, um, you know, takes years to try to get a handle on what they've got going on. And the last significant um, mob deal in this country was really John Gotti trial, right? They also call it's G-O-T-T-I if you want to look him up, if you don't know that case. It's a very interesting case. They called him Teflon Don. Well, now that we know that all these trials are fake, right, um, they put him through trial. See, it's delay, 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 because... My view is the whole time they were trying Teflon Don in the court system, <laughs> that gave them much more time to rob and steal, right? So that extended out the life, life, lifelong ambitions of the mafia. But around the 90s, that kind of came to an end, it appears, with uh, Teflon Don, um, John Gotti. Well, um, funny thing. Um, who prosecuted Teflon Don? Well, now that we know more, it becomes even more interesting, right? Well, Rudy Giuliani. If that's not a nutcase and a psychopath, I don't know what else to tell you, right? And look at Rudy's nose. Um, I mean, the last picture I saw of Rudy, he was sweating so bad, and he had um, hair color dripping down his face. So he's obviously flying off the edge here, right? Um, stay off those hormones, kids. Anyway, so, um, yeah... Now that we know that part was a whole scam, I have to wonder about, well, what was the Mafia really about? Well, the Mafia was about stealing. Sound familiar? Um, robbing, cheating, um, all of their traits through the entire history. <laughs> I've focused on these people, right? Well, what else do the Italians have that are similar to the Jews? <laughs> well, I would argue that nose, right? <laughs> so, and what's happening now is with these phony... They started doing these DNA kits, right? I found some data on it, and what it is, you know, everybody can buy and get their own DNA kit for a hundred bucks or something. Matter of fact, one of the wives of the DNA ex-wives in the DNA business is um, the wife of the founder of Google, okay? And the other DNA business in this country, which is significant, is in um, Utah. And um, that DNA database is privately held. Nobody has access to it than, than them. So essentially what they're doing is gathering up a lot of DNA all over the place. 
Well, what they have done, in my view only, okay, what they have done is they turned it into a sport. Like, send us a hundred bucks and we'll send you a kit and you can trace your family's history. Well, they ran into a lot of stumbling blocks because, you know, I've talk, I'm not going to go over it, but, you know, they lost the census records in the 1800s. <laughs> So, um, the genealogy thing, if people were sitting down trying to trace it themselves, became even more complicated. So I think this DNA kit became a quicker way to trick people because those people stumbling around through old records, like my mom and her cousin Bruce were doing, they came out with this DNA kit where they could now charge you a couple hundred bucks to see who your relatives were and where you came from. Well, okay, there's a lot of problems with that, and I have found pieces that people that are scientific and that can actually explain this stuff better than me, that this stuff was really set up as a game, okay, a money game. But what it did was expose some of their vulnerabilities. See, you always have to watch out when you're trying to trick people. So anyway, so, but luckily their vulnerabilities get exposed to a sleeping audience. People aren't really connecting, but, so yeah, so what they're finding is they're finding different paths in history that these people supposedly took because things aren't making sense, right? So I start. So I was looking into what are people saying as far as are other people suspicious? <laughs> now I'm suspicious for another reason, <laughs> a completely different reason. Are other people suspicious of a link between Jews and Italians? Well, I'm not only suspicious. I believe there is a dead-on direct connection. Okay, when you look at the mafia. So what happened with the mafia in the 90s? Did they did they stop robbing and cheating us? Well, a couple things that happened in the 90s. The 90s, the mid-90s, by 1994, pretty much a lot of us were starting to get home desktop computers. Now, pretty much a few of us, not the whole world, okay? Because I was in California in 1990, and during that lawsuit with Intel, they sent out this great offer from the local phone company, and it would have been around 1994. And if you bought a, excuse me, a desktop computer... They would um, give you payments on it. Of course, I was going through a lawsuit against Intel, so I wasn't looking to spend money. But So I thought, well, this is a great deal. Let me just get this computer. So really, it was only around the mid-90s that some of us, not the whole country, were getting computers. So this makes a perfect exit plan for the mafia, right? Because that would tie them together in a more worldwide way and more access. Other people would have more access to snooping around, probably, as a reason. So, so what they do next? Well, they always have a continuum, now, don't they? Well... I think they put on slicker business suits and started driving fancier cars, and they set up business in Silicon Valley, my hometown, old hometown. <laughs> yeah, and you think about the amount of money that the mafia stole through their history with just, I mean, just all of, and you have to remember that all of those mafia stories as far as, um, never been able to find this guy's body and all the old mafias. I used to watch all these things, okay? There was that one guy, they, they say that they never could find his body, Hoffer or something like that, and then his son went on to be like the mayor of Chicago. You see, they all connect, right? Is Hoffer really dead? Well, I kind of doubt it. He maybe is dead now because so many years have passed, but these things all are tricks and games. This is an illusion, right? So yeah, they tell us things like, oh, we, we, we're still looking for one of them. <laughs> we don't know if he was buried in cement back behind the schoolyard or something. So that's how the whole game works. So they can really chew up our time for years with some of these deals, right? There are people right now, if you were to go online and look, you will probably find a bunch of people still wondering where Hoffa's, Jimmy, what was it, Jimmy Hoffa? Yeah, you'll wonder, people are still wondering where did they put Jimmy Hoffa's body? So see how these things can extend out. 
So I believe they put on better suits and they were in California. You know, they set up Silicon Valley. Because if you look at probably the gross income of the mafia over the years, and I don't have time to do that, but just take a look. Just take just think in your own head. How much did the mafia steal from the early nineteen hundreds until nineteen let's say the last trial of Gotti was um nineteen ninety six or something, right? So let's figure the mafia was full steam ahead stealing and robbing from Americans, um early nineteen hundreds, let's not get crazy about the dates, but early nineteen hundreds to about 1999. Well, the mafia is probably still going on, but I'm just saying the heyday of the mafia ended with that trial with Giuliani. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the heyday of the mafia would have ended in the mid-90s. When did Silicon Valley take off? Well, about that time period, right? That was when things were really starting to pop there, because about the time I left the Mountain View area, which would have been about 1999, Google was moving into that area. So, yeah, so there's a I could see a pretty good connection between the end of the mafia <laughs> and, and the promotion of high tech. Because you look at all these pump and dumps. Okay, how much do they make just on Theranos? You know, how much are they making on the lies about Tesla? So you, you could kind of in your mind picture that it's a pretty big money game, right? And who's in charge of it? Well, it appears to me it's the same group of people. So I found somebody, these people always have these smart people that do all these little studies and stuff. So I found one of them, and I thought, well, this is kind of an interesting one about how they explain why Jews and Italians have the same nose, okay? So let's just follow along here. They said, it has been noted in many studies that there is a close genetic similarity between Ashkenazi Jews and Southern Italians and Greeks. Why such close genetic similarity? First, some history on the Mediterranean. The Greeks colonized Italy, Sicily, and territory up to the Black Sea coast. This is why southern Italy and Greeks are genetically similar. Where do Ashkenazi Jews fit in? The four main founders of the Ashkenazi Jew population have ancestry in prehistoric Europe and not in the Caucasus or the Near East. The four minor founders have a deep European ancestry. So with genetic testing, we can see that the majority of the Ashkenazi population didn't have its origin in the Caucasus or Levant, but through assimilation of Roman women who converted to Judaism. Overall, it seems that at least 80% of Ashkenazi maternal ancestry is due to the assimilation of MTDAs indigenous to Europe, most likely through conversion. Now, we've been talking about, remember all those stories about conversion of the Khazgars. What they do in these things is they set up a million rabbit holes, so you have to kind of figure out which ones to jump in or which ones to jump out, right? So, yeah, I can see a real direct connection because, remember, these are the same people known for their back vagabond ways. These are the same people that supposedly get kicked out of countries. These are the people that are always at the head of some sort of robbery, right? So what they have been able to trace through some of this stuff is kind of interesting. Um, and some of this stuff is just too crazy for me to even try to read because it just gets, it gets confusing. But here's the part that I can kind of understand. Male Jews, and remember before I get, get going here, I don't believe that the elites have been having their own children for probably the last couple of generations. 
other women are having their children. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Look at their families. Do any of those kids really look like them? <laughs> Does anybody look alike? Not really. Um, look at the royal family. They look like completely disassociated people. Uh, I mean, not even not even close in how they compare their looks, okay? And I'm not going to get, I, I don't know their DNA. I've never looked at their DNA test. I'm just looking with my eyes, okay? And I look at these celebrity children. I don't believe most of the children we even see in those pictures live with those people full time. But that is definitely a subject for a different day. <laughs> so, anyhow, so um, they said that these male Jews went to Rome and they had relationships with Gecko during the Gecko Roman times, okay? And you look at statues of Roman people and they all have that kind of a nose, right? So they said with, with mass conversions led to 6 million Roman women who then began to practice Judaism. And remember, I've also been tracing the Romani people around, right? So Romani, Roman, see how they all start to play little games with the words? The genetic proximity of Ashkenazi Jews and Syrian Jews to Northern Italians, Sardinians, and French populations suggests there is a non-Semitic ancestry in Ashkenazi Jews. So what they're saying is the Jews have an ancestry in other types of um, groups, right? The findings also say that any theories of Ashkenazi Jews have ancestry in Khazaria or from Slavs are incompatible with genetic studies. So they think that um, the theories of Ashkenazi have an ancestry are incompatible. So what they're saying is genetically, they don't think the Khazars or the Slavs are compatible. But remember, they write all these studies and stuff. So is that true? I don't know. Nothing. It's not. You have when you do research, you, you have to figure out what are you going to get hung up on, right? <laughs> is it important to spend the next eight hours on? Um, so the close genetic similarities of Ashkenazi Jews and Southern Europeans has been noted in many studies. So we have male Jews from the Lebanon who trek who trek to Roman around the Greco-Roman times. They took I'm reading their words here. They took beautiful Roman women as wives, who then converted to Judaism. Which brings me to this is their they're talking about me meaning them not me. Which brings me to another point about Ashkenazi Jews. Again, for anyone who thinks that Ashkenazi Jews have origins in Khazaria and thus are not the true Jew, these studies put that to rest. So there's there just a lot of questions of what is a true Jew, right? And remember, they've always said that Judaism is passed down through the mother of the child, okay? Which really kind of throws the stuff into chaos in my brain if you kind of think that, well, they didn't really have those kids, right? Um, do they have some breeding groups that um, are breeding special pure chosen one children? Yeah, that's what they're doing. But subject for another day. Um, it's always said that passed through the mother to the child. Other sects of Judaism have it passed from the father to the child. So why the difference with Ashkenazi Jews? She went on to say she has a simple theory. And this theory, I don't even understand for a minute, but I will read it to you, okay? We know that the mother's IQ is the most important predictor of the child's IQ. That could be true. I don't know this. I'm not one of those people. I don't know what their studies are and stuff, right? So 
they're saying that the mother's IQ is important factor in what the child's IQ could end up with. That being said, why do Ashkenazi Jews say that Judaism passed from the mother to the child? Her theory is this, because if IQ is passed from the mother to the child, they say that only Ashkenazi women can birth an Ashkenazi Jew. We know that since IQ passes from mother to child, that the reason for Judaism being passed like this is because it is known that mothers are the best predictors of intelligence. Is that true? I really can't tell you that, you know. So if you have a smart mother, you're better off than a uh, stupid father? I, I don't know. Anyways. So due to Jewish males migrating to Rome and courting and mating with beautiful Roman women who then converted to Judaism, this is where the Ashkenazi Jews get their intellect from. We can see from the average IQs of Mizrah and Sephatic Jews that their IQ averaged between 80 and 95, right around the average of the Middle East. Well, you know, the Ashkenazis, let's admit it, folks, okay? They're the chosen ones, so of course they're going to have the highest IQs. <laughs> Too bad they're also ugly. Anyway, so um, she went on to say, I pose it that the Ashkenazi Jews got their current intellect from breeding with Roman women. It makes sense, especially with what we know about the mother's IQ. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of merit here. My main point is I believe, believe, I'm not thinking, <laughs> I believe that the um, early mob people were these people, right? And they were the ones who were robbing everybody for all those years under the guise of the mob, right? So yeah, if you can find anything good that came out of the Mafia days, please clue me in, because I, I I used to get into all that kind of stuff, right? The Mafia was a pretty violent organization. I mean, maybe they weren't so violent. Maybe the pictures they showed us in newspapers were more violent than what they actually did. Because here's the deal. If you're going to go after your enemy, you want them to think you're big, bad, and all these things, right? So yeah, and it was just pure thuggery, right? And I think they just learned better skills because they doled out the information for the internet. They got a reset up, set up in Silicon Valley. And really, robbing with a computer is much more pleasant and effective than all that blood you get from the old mafia ways, right? So they were probably growing in their ways to rob people. And clearly, uh, it seems to have worked quite well. Credit were due, right? Credit were due. So yeah, the Italians, in my mind, are a group of people that are essentially hiding as Ashkenazi Jews, right? Now, I am not saying that every Italian in all of Italy, they probably, these people have traveled around, they've gone into different populations, they've hidden who they were. If you can't believe that, think about this. How hidden are they right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have tried to hide their trail like crazy. I keep bringing up Rothschild, but really, they have hidden their trail like crazy. So, yeah, so I would propose that the Italian mafia was the Ashkenazi Jews, and I stand firmly behind that because I think it ties in with the triad. It ties in with the Vatican being ruled as a separate state. Same deal with the United States. And the same deal with, what was it, Vatican, the United States, and Washington, D.C. Those three places, okay? So here we are back again. 
So I propose that on the Vatican Inn, we got the Mafia, right? And the Mafia is really them because if they originate out of those three tentacles, right? I don't know. You have to tell me. A lot of times I will post the new show. <laughs> just for fun of it, I'll post this one over on YouTube. I won't post the show. I just po post a link to it. Um, <laughs> depends on what I put in the title. But anyway, so you can always drop a comment over there because if I post this show, it'll be on the Psychopath in Your Life um, channel there under the Community tab. And I'll post the show there, and then you you can actually drop a comment there. Or you can drop a comment at the website. But this is my current thinking. The mob was the Jews, okay? Simple as that. But just think it over for yourself. Remember, the idea is for us to have a chat. And this is where I stand with this, and it is crystal clear to me that that is exactly what has gone on. Now, how many years back? Hey, that's really a dispute, okay? But it seems both genetically... And their movements, their past, their behaviors, the, um, I mean, the mob was pretty ruthless, supposedly, and, you know, putting ho dead horses' heads in people's beds. And some, some famous crime, they, the guy got a dead, dead horse's head in his bed as some message for the mafia. I mean, remember when you read these things also, all this horror that's gone on at the hands of these people, the stories they tell us aren't going to be a direct reflection, right? But stop and think for a minute, okay? What kind of people would cook up a story like a Jeffrey Dahmer, okay? Jeffrey Dahmer was a guy who was eating bodies and stuff and storing body parts in his apartment. Well, that whole story was all fake, right? And now that we know it's fake, one has to wonder about the people we're surrounded by with this thought. What in the hell is going on with their brains that they would actually cook up this idea of Jeffrey Dahmer hanging around eating bodies and all that kind of stuff. I mean, who, who comes up with this stuff is what I want to ask. Who cooked up, like, um, all of them, Ted Bundy. Um, who cooks these things up? Well, I would, I would argue some pretty psychopathic personalities. going on the um, topic du jour, the Ashkenazi Jews. Now, you might be wondering, how long have I been looking at this group? Well, I would have to say for quite a while, because here's what first drew my attention. Because I mentioned in the past that I had happened to have been quite a fan of watching fake um, World War II documentaries, right? Um as a matter of fact, an old World War II documentary gave me an idea about how to train my dogs because what they were doing there to retrieve them. And that's why I said, hey, get your dogs and get some very long leashes because there will become a time when you want to yank them back in, right? So anyhow, so why did I start thinking about Ashkenazi Jews? Well, because one day it just dawned on me that um, Ashkenazi, right? Nazi, N-A-Z-I, is the last four letters of their name, <laughs> which is a pretty significant clue, right? And I really didn't have enough data all of this time to pull all these pieces together without appearing like a complete racist and anti-Semite. <laughs> so anyhow, so 
I have some more data that is very much worth sharing because I was digging through my files and I was just chuckling, okay, because, uh, you know, I don't know where you are in the world, but in the United States, we are really fed a rather pathetic diet of things, which are really all engineered to destroy our systems. So anyway, so yeah, so, um, and I had a lot of comments that I've gathered of people of what they were saying, you know, these different researchers and stuff, they're, they're people, right? And this gal wrote, a, I don't know if it's a gal, wrote a thing. And <laughs> The title she started off with saying, Not a big fan of some of the things they ate. She's talking about the Ashkenazi Jews. Because they were exiled to much colder climate, they couldn't preserve everything they ate in ancient Israel. This is why you have creolized foods like latkes and I don't know what they are. It's a stuff. It's a stuffed pastry that assembles something else. I had to look that that part up because I don't understand the words. But anyway, so we're talking about their dietary thing, which is really a pretty big clue here, right? Because you can start to trace people by their diet. So yeah, and also when you look at what they're thinking is a good diet for us, it kind of all makes a lot of sense, right? Um, so um, because I have said all along that all of their hormone experiences started with themselves. They have been the leaders in doing the all of the early hormone testing to convert the sexes on their own group, right? Um, and I've talked about that in the past in conjunction with that, um, you know, the hapsburg jaw. So, you now I wasn't there. Can I prove it? Well, no, but I can prove it through logic and all of my research for all these years because of all the diseases the Ashkenazi Jews have, and that makes it pretty simple and pretty easy to take a look at who they are, right? Because when you read about diseases like, you know, I don't know, MS and all these nerve disorder diseases, that cleft chin, they all trace to hormones, right? And I have argued for a long time that they started creating the hormones. They did the original testing on themselves, right? And it makes more sense as I go along because they really they haven't been at this game all that long if you look at it. Especially when you get to the part that will be in another segment as far as uh, when they cooked up the hospitals, right? So, so it also has to make sense because they evidently have a pretty horrific diet to begin with. So what they would pawn off on us here in this country makes sense to me, right? So anyway, so it was worth sharing. So that's their reason because they say they had a lousy diet because they ate in ancient Israel, they couldn't transport this stuff around with them. Well, then we have to also ask a ton of questions, right? Are we sure that they came from age? Are we sure that this particular group of Ashkenazi Jews, are we really sure that they're the group that everybody's talking about in Israel? Now, I'm pretty sure this is a group that's in Israel right now as the um, Zionists, but I, I don't think we need to take a leap right now because we don't know. We don't know. They say that there are those Jews from Israel, right? I mean, there is a possibility that there were some Jews in Israel, and these people got this idea cooked up while they were traveling around through Rome and these different places and stuff, and then came back and conquered the area. You know, what I mean? because they have a pattern of sliding in and out of disguises and stuff like that. So there is a possibility, and uh, maybe people are saying, well, they. 
The reason they didn't eat the food from ancient Egypt is because they couldn't preserve it. Well, maybe because that wasn't even their diet, right? Because they're not from ancient Egypt. They're not from ancient Israel, excuse me. So, you know, you always have to look at every angle here because it possibly could mean that this Ashkenazi Jew group is not even anywhere near close to Israel, right? They could be claiming they were the ones from Israel, right? Because if you tie in that black Jesus thing, all that all that whole other history they cooked up, it starts to make a level of sense because, um, sure, there could have been somebody in ancient Israel. I'll go along with that one, right? Um, all, some of that stuff could be true because the basis of a good lie is some truth, right? So, yeah, I would concede that possibly ancient Israel, they had a certain diet. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I would probably concede that just for this conversation. So what this would lead me to believe is maybe the reason these people that have been identified as Ashkenazi Jews in Europe, right, with the lousy diet, maybe they aren't even connected to what they were eating in Israel because they're not the same people. And maybe they rebounded under the Zionist thing. These people have slithered their way, hiding disguises. So there is always many things to look at, right? So they're going on to say that these were, um, the, the, the things just weren't the same as they were in Israel. Um, and they also went on to say they're coming up with um, different reasons why they might not have had it. Well, yeah, I can think of a lot of reasons why I don't, I'm not familiar with eating food from India. <laughs> It's nothing to do with anything other than I'm not familiar with it. So anyway, so um, they said that, um, so so saying that they didn't have the same staples as what they have in Israel is kind of a crazy argument, right? But anyway, so bottom line here is that they went on to say, but because Ashkenazim were isolated and often significantly poorer, poorer than native Europeans, they didn't always have access to quality foods or ingredients. And that's why they had to eat things like ghetto fish, or no thanks. She went on to say, black hats and stockings. I understand why they wore such things in post-Renaissance Europe after turbans and robes were outlawed. But in Israel, it looks kind of ridiculous, not to mention uncomfortably hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is quite a look, right, with those little braided things coming down, quite a unique look. Well, I think the hats could be for one reason and one reason alone, because they're all bald, right? So somebody wove hats into their cultural design. I mean, just another thing to think about, right? Uh, because they went on to say, thankfully, you'll almost never see non-Hasidic Ashkenazims wearing those things. So the other sect doesn't wear those things. The stockings are mostly generally limited to Satyrin and NK, I don't know what that means, both of, who, both of whom anti-Zionists. Okay, so what they're saying here is actually kind of fascinating because what these Ashkenazi Jews right now in Israel are wearing, this person is just commenting and saying, well, you know, actually none of the other Jews wear this kind of same clothing. Kind of puts them in a little bit of an intruder kind of place, right? So yeah, I would seriously guess that if I was going to devise a, a costume to take somebody over, I'd probably, if I was bald, I'd probably design a hat and some long braided pigtails. <laughs> so, and everybody always feels sorry for them. And that's what I learned through when I interviewed the psychopaths and in, I don't know, 15, 20 years, I had a forum and focused on 
what their behaviors were toward their victims. And one thing that stood out like <laughs> like a glaring deal was psychopaths have a um, a rather well defined ability to uh, create a victim or create or victimize others while they're portraying themselves as a victim. And if you stop for just a minute and think about the history uh, that we've been told of the Jewish population, well, we've been told that they were operated on in Germany. And in Germany, really another thing that I used to think about, and I still kind of, it's still in my mind, you know, they said that a lot of people were operated on in Germany. And those eugenics think, well, that, that continued on at that military base in Germany that the U.S. set up, the NATO they set up after the war. At least that's what I think. They, they just moved the eugenics over there, okay? But there is another possibility that there were some real Jewish people, and part of this deal was the Ashkenazis organized this whole thing to exterminate them. I mean, these are pretty significant possibilities if you think about it, right? So that is a possibility because they could be just a complete interloper. Um, into the whole Jewish thing to begin with. That's why they don't seem to connect with these new DNA things very much into Africa. And I will be showing you, um, well, when I can, hopefully next show, but um, about how they, you know, we're in Africa in the 1800s, the area I've been looking at, and they control, I mean, like 80% of certain these things, okay? So um, certainly one could see that this is a high possibility, right? Um, so... Um, so what they do is if you present yourself as a complete victim, then people aren't likely to say much stuff to you, right? Because you're not going to walk up to somebody who they claim is abused and start making some wisecracks, right? As a matter of fact, you have to always consider the source because I don't have never joked around about people like that. But somebody, a few people did think that when I was um, laughing about Elon Musk getting supposedly beaten as a kid, um, I was laughing at the story because obviously these people haven't tuned in very much because I have laughed my head off at every one of their backstories because now that I know that it's all been cooked up by them, some of them I find actually quite hysterical, okay? I don't want to cross things that they've written because remember, it's a magic act, okay? They also have these magic characters, they have the jokesters, they have the astrology people, they have all these things. so. Sometimes I'll run across some things that these people have written that I just will find just hysterical, right? Well, it's probably hysterical on purpose, right? Um, so, um, yeah, so it's looking more and more to me like the Ashkenazis are just a little a group, and um, they're in charge now, and were they really from Israel? Right now, I would say probably not. I would probably say they interloped into Israel, the same way they interloped into here, right? So um, so this is how they start to get our, our sympathy, right? Like I said just a minute ago, if you feel sympathetic to somebody, you might not think a lot of things, right? Um, because it would seem appropriate to wonder why this person has this or that, right? And that's how they had to kind of program us along the way to make questioning things would appear like we're being anti-Semitic, right? So I think they went through a process of getting us to view these things as, as bad, and we would be bad people for questioning them, right? So that was, in my mind, one of their best covers in this whole deal that's been going on for the last few hundred years, is because 
everybody became seriously convinced to not look at the Jews cross-eyed <laughs> after World War II. I mean, think about it. After World War II, if I, if I, let's say you invited me to your home for dinner, right? And um, hopefully pick something better to eat than these people. But let's say you invite me to your home. If I were to, you have a bunch of other friends there and stuff, and if I were to, in the conversation, somebody says, well, what do you do? And they say, oh, that's interesting. What subjects? And if I were to enter the Jew subject <laughs> into the conversation before anybody had a chance to meet me or anything, automatically the entire conversation would shut down this country, okay? Because we have been so penalized and so terrorized to say a single word about the Jews. I mean, it has been propaganda against the rest of us to keep our eyes off of them. If you think about it, it is a magnificent scam, right? And along the way, I believe how they got these other countries to cooperate was they got other Jew people spread out, okay? But that doesn't necessarily make all of them psychopaths, right? So I think with the lure of money, they infiltrated everything because this is all their stage. This is all their illusion against us, right? So I think they uh, likely, you know, they put their own people in charge at first. I can tell you that all the world leaders of said now are pretty much have been um, transsexualized, but not all of them. There, there could be some that I haven't looked at. I haven't looked at every single country. So you have to always leave your options open, right? So when I could see that the main ones have been transgendered. I can see they're transgendering their own children. There, there again, that supports my theory that they started this with themselves, right? Because the approach that they're making right now to transgender the kids and people now is a pretty horrific, uh, let's say, uneducated way of going about it, right? They're creating all these diseases and all this kind of stuff because really they have shown themselves to be Somebody who doesn't appear to have much empathy toward the rest of us, right? I mean, who would treat other people like we're going through right now? I mean, you wouldn't want to starve somebody, would you? I mean, seriously. So I read this interesting piece that I think that there's a possibility right now that some of their own leader friends and stuff may be questioning their tactics. Because I think in the end, the Larry Fink crowd and uh, whoever is at the top of the three-tiered the three structure, you know, the Vatican, the Washington, D.C., and the other thing, I think that at the top person is where this is all going, right? Well, they have organized it so everybody else under them is funnily into their system, but pretty much getting jerked around and treated like trash, right? I mean, you know, sure, they pay off these other leaders and exile them. It's, <clears throat> it's all part of the act. But I gotta believe that there's people out there that are now seeing by the actions of the World Bank that. You know, they're enslaving their own people with having to um, go along with their plans, like, you know, to cut off fertilizer in certain countries. You know, they've been doing different things to lead up to this. This hasn't been just a singular act, of course, right? You know, they, they cut off, um, you know, Sri Lanka. They cut off, they said, oh, let's go organic fertilizer, right? So now Sri Lanka has no food. So, yeah, I believe and I hope that there's an element of people who are now seeing this as, well, they've given up a lot for these psychopaths, right? Um, because the psychopaths are only interested, whoever this person at this thing at the top is, and, you know, you can guess that people like Larry Fink are part of that crowd, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, there's always been this rather horrific attitude from this country of just, just arrogance, okay? Um, just unbrittled arrogance toward other countries, you know, calling them shithole countries. Well, those are also 
good sign to defense because if everybody gets convinced that you're the best one and the other ones are shitholes, well, how long will they get these, what they're calling shithole countries to keep going along with them, right? Um, so, yeah, so because the treatment will be brutal for everybody. So, I don't know. Maybe at some point people thought, well, yeah, this is a good deal. I can get bought off because how did they work their way through Africa and these places? How did they work their way through here? By robbing and stealing and buying people off. I mean, come on. They were buying off the Indian tribe. They were doing it all at the top, right? So, there's a possibility that there are people that have been bought off for all the gold who might consider having second thoughts. That might, that's my point here, okay? I think that this is like the end. <laughs> you know, that old, maybe that's what attracted me to the doors back when I was a kid. Um, yeah, that song, The End. Yeah, I, I honestly, totally, 100% believe that we're on the final battleground right now. And our behavior is going to make a pretty significant uh, thing. Because these people have really set up some pretty significant tricks. And naturally, I kind of find it all fascinating, so I try to keep a more remote view of it. Because really, you have to also look at that Larry Fink. And I'll have pictures that I'll be doing over on the website. You know, with, I, I'll put together pictures for you of like John Gotti and these people. Um, and you have to just look at them and think, this person participated in this kind of evil against the rest of us. Just because now the current version is rocking a suit and a tie, um, you know, and living in a mansion, um, these are all not good things, okay? Uh, but I have to give them complete credit. You know, they're recruiting for their team right now pretty heavily, but I have to give them credit. It really has worked, okay? They have most of the population behaving in fairly psychopathic ways over money, right? Not that it makes them bad people, so separate the two. There's a lot of behaviors going on now that are being driven by being run into the corner. So you always have to look at things, and you can't look at a poor person and just judge it based on something that they have fed you to believe, right? So yeah, so I don't know. Anyway, let me read some more of these because here's, so they've, they've completely set us up to believe that these people were so punished and so but maybe the people that were punished were the ones that were getting tested on, right? And the people who were not punished would be the Ashkenazi Jews. So that's my point. So um, they they trained us to not say anything about them. That That's pretty significant, right? Anyway, so they went on to say, this explains that thinking, right? It says, the almost complete lack of empathy people have for them. They went through so much hell, arguably more than any other Jewish dysphoria group. But many people, even including a certain Israel advocacy leader, who I have no fan of, still love to bash them for a whole host of reasons, many of them anti-Semitic. You'll hear people describe them as fake Semites, despite suffering more than anyone else for their Israelite background. It is quite sickening, and it makes my blood boil to white nuclear levels. And last but not least, colonized attitudes, in other words, an internalized sense of shame and embarrassment toward their own Jewishness, or Middle Easternness more broadly, and a desire to be white. This is a problem every oppressed non-European group has to deal with. 
but it's a problem for Ashkenazims big time, and it's frustrating as hell. The Holocaust really did a number on us psychologically. Now, this person could be, you know, I'm saying that there could be one little tiny group and the rest of them are Jews, you know, so um, people um, people were raised Jewish, as, you know, and, and these people likely invaded that religion, is what I'm saying. So you have to be careful when you start looking at groups that we don't like broad brush them all, right? So I'm seeing probably, you know, these other people didn't have the same psychopathic behavior. So it's it's not like saying, it's like saying that every Italian is a uh, mafia person or every Italian has to be a Jew, right? You have to look, separate the issues here. So anyway, so they said the Holocaust really did a number on us psychologically. And because of that, you'll hear many Ashkenazis insist they are white and shun anything that even remotely reminds them of their Middle Easterners. Granted, not all Ashkenazis are like this. Many are perfectly happy being Middle Eastern brown slash, but it's a common attitude and one that I've been fighting for years with some success. So, seems like they're trying to explain why these um, Ashkenazis, who are now the um, Zionists, who are running things in Israel and running things around the world, um, seem to have white skin. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that's very interesting, right? Because I was thinking that maybe they had been... Uh, well, they've been through those countries, and some of them have different color skin because there's a whole broad spectrum of Ashkenazi. But the group that we are specifically looking at, as in the world leaders, all are pretty white, okay? Now, there's a few black ones in there and stuff, so yeah, that could have been from Ashkenazi Jews mating with Africans, right? So, yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to think that they're white. Uh, so, yeah. But they're represented like, well, they're ashamed that they're, they're, they want to be white because they don't want to be dark. Well, no, no, maybe the, maybe the other reality is these Ashkenazis are the white ones and the other Jews have the darker. See what I mean? The real Jews could have like a more European skin. The Ashkenazis could have a whiter skin. So, um, and because of that, they, they want to be white. So, yeah, it could be they're, they're white to begin with, right? And then this person had a pretty good definition. They said, because um, I have, <clears throat> because of all of the, uh, all the times that I end up in Germany, <laughs> suspiciously, right? <laughs> um, the question was, uh, I was wondering, did Ashkenazi Jews have a German ancestry? Because now with all this DNA kit going around, there's more things you can ask questions about, right? Without looking like a complete anti-Semite. <laughs> They said, uh, are Ashkenazi Jews German? No. The word Ashkenaz refers to a large swath of Europe that included Germany and France. Due to the exile perpetuated by the Roman conquest, Jews migrated to that area from Israel as it was all under the Roman dominion. Hence the term Ashkenazi Jews. Well, Okay, but also these Jews could have picked up the speed in Roman, right? They didn't have to come from Israel. They could have slid in through uh, Rome, right, where they were there getting mating with Roman women. So, yeah, I would say the Jews, um, th this group is very specific is what I'm saying. Um, 
So they said the term Ashkenazi Jews. Others migrated to Spain, mainly those Jews who had been exiled earlier into Babylonia. The Iberian Peninsula was known as Sephardic. That's where they got the Sephardic Jew name from. These two Jewish settlements developed independently the different schools of spiritual leaders that's why there are ashkenaz and shepherd jews but we all serve the creator and master of the world the basic laws we keep are the same just different customs well yeah um and then they go on to say this is them saying because i want to be clear because i didn't come up with these words <laughs> this is one of the most Imbecilic claims that the pro-Palestine party likes to make, and it is very appalling to see how this theory that asserts Ashkenazis are Europeans, that has gained legitimacy among anti-Zionists and perpetuated the mainstream. Yeah, the Palestinians, you know, who knows, maybe the Palestinians were really the original Jews because they're now living over in Israel in a very confined, bullet-ridden area, right? Uh, aside from that, of course, from the fact that there is not one iota of genetic evidence to support this incredible anti-Semitic argument. I think I should remind you that the ethnogenesis of all Jewish people in Israel was not once denied until 1948. Well, who knows? Maybe that was around the era that these people uh, were able to take over Israel. I mean, <laughs> so... In Europe, one of the main reasons that anti-Semitism was so prevalent was that Jews were foreigners and Orientals. The Semitic origins of Jews were not only accepted, but used as a reason to hate them. Jews weren't considered white Europeans when they were only granted equal legal rights in the second half of, excuse me, Jews weren't considered white Europeans when they were only granted equal legal rights in the second half of the 19th century. Well, another possibility, right? This group took over some other group in the 18th century, so now they didn't, oh geez, so now they didn't become noticed until then, right? So they weren't considered white Europeans. The Tsarist regime imposed racial laws on them. Norway, Hungary, Germany, Romania, Poland, Poland, Russia, and so many other European nations began persecuting Jews in the aftermath of World War I, okay? Nor when the Nazis began eagerly encouraging the boycott of Jewish businesses. Okay, yeah, so what this says to me is that, you know, they could have interloped into all this in the, you know, some power takeover could have happened around that era. Um, because also when I get back with this black nobility stuff from Africa, same era, right? So it kind of seems to connect. And then their fascination with companies like Blackstone, Blackrock. Okay, this is what they say as the birthplace of Judaism, okay? See, I don't understand the Bible or that, so I'm, I'm just reading what one of their people says, okay? The birthplace of Judaism is obviously the Middle East. Jewish civilization was born in Mesopotamia 3,800 years ago. Abraham and Sarah were both born in the Mesopotamian city of Uar, now Iraq, in the same tribe. 
So Abraham and Sarah were born in the same tribe. You have to excuse me because I don't know the Bible or anything. I had to kind of recap it for my own brain here. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah were born in this Mesopotamia city in Uar, which is now Iraq. And they came from the same tribe, this Abraham and Sarah, right? More precisely, they were brother and sister. In those days, marriages among closest relatives were the norm. The city of Uar still exists in Iraq. Despite the fact that today's Judaism is a religion, many European sub-ethnic Jewish groups have merged in the 2700 years of exiles, the Ashkenazi Jews being one of them. So they're saying that many European sub-ethnic Jewish groups, okay, that tells me, possibly not from Israel, right? Um, yeah. And then they made some examples. They said, here's some examples of the Ashkenazi Jews, and they're all white. Yeah, they look around at who's in charge of things, okay? Aren't they all kind of white, if you ask me? I mean, just looking at, I mean, go look at... Uh, I'll, I'll post some pictures over there of, of groups you might want to look at. Um, it's a really white crowd. And they certainly have exhibited a pretty um, racist attitude, right? So then somebody wrote this piece. Well, yeah, these other Jews could be all this other stuff. So what they said was, um, they said, today Jews come in all colors. And number one was, did you know the Jews of China built their famous Purity and Truth synagogue in the third year of the Dading period. I don't know. Did you know 1,500 black African Jews traced their 3,000-year history to the time of Israel's King Solomon? Well, I would probably believe that before this group, right? Because this group is the interloper group, right? Well, I'm just speculating on the interloper group. Did you know Spanish and Portuguese crypto secret Jews arrived in New Mexico some 500 years ago fleeing the Spanish Inquisition? Yeah, so what this says is that a lot of Jews live in New Mexico, right? That they obviously fled there. Did you know in India, the Bain Israel, the Bain Israel community, their ancestors arrived there 2,000 years ago? Could have been possible, but I, I don't think, I, I don't know. We're just worried about the last couple hundred years when these guys got our claws in us, right? <laughs> All this other stuff just kind of leads in the direction of who we're looking at. Um, did you know the Jews of Morocco made pilgrimage each year in the tombs of 13 holy... They arrived... The Jews of Morocco made pilgrimage each year to the tombs of 13 holy sages. And they celebrate a unique Jewish holiday called Memuah. Because of political turbulences, Jewish nation became racially diverse. They're very different looking. Yeah, that happens because, you know. But nice to know, but not really important for us right now. So anyway, so that gives you a good look at uh, why I'm thinking they're white. <laughs> um why I'm thinking the things that I'm thinking. So anyway, so onward we go.
Okay, let me, um, the whole purpose of this is to show you where I've been going with this, right? And so, um, because if I were to log on and say, hey, <laughs> they're all Ashkenazi Jews, it would be kind of hard to sell that story, right, without filling you in. So there was a report, I've been digging through files, and I think I've found the conclusive ones for us to wrap up this conversation about the Ashkenazi Jews and why I am now completely and completely suspect of the whole deal with these people and Israel. So this study says, it was an article actually, most Ashkenazi Jews are genetically Europeans, surprising study find. October 2013. <sighs> You'll have to excuse my dog next to me. Um, the origin of the Ashkenazi Jews, who come most recently from Europe, has largely been shrouded in mystery. But a new study suggests that at least their maternal lineage may derive largely from Europe. Though the findings may seem intuitive, it contradicts the notion that European Jews mostly descended from people who left Israel and the Middle East around 2,000 years ago. Yes, yeah, see kids, lying is very tricky business because when they rolled out this DNA thing, they have been kind of tripping all over themselves to explain. Come on, explain this part of the story. What do you mean you came from Israel? Okie dokie. So, um, and I pop, I posted some biblical thing about Israel that I don't have any idea about over on the website, along with a whole bunch of pictures of all these people. So I found pictures of them with their black hats and their <laughs> curly um, pigtails. Okay. So yeah, the common knowledge is that um, Jews mostly descended from people who had left Israel and the Middle East around 2,000 years ago. That is the popular narrative, right? And by Jews, that would mean the Ashkenazi Jews, right? Or the Ashkenazi groups could have broken off from some other Jew group. Who knows, right? And it went on to say, instead, a substantial proportion of the population originates from local Europeans who converted to Judaism, said the study author. Okay, so though the findings may seem into it, it contradicts the notion that European Jews, so any Jews in Europe, they used to say they were descendants from Israel. And they, the next headline is Tangled Legacy. Little is known about the history of Ashkenazi Jews before they were expelled from the Mediterranean and settled in what is now Poland around the 12th century. On average, all Ashkenazi Jews are generally a closely related to each other as fourth or fifth cousins, says Dr. Harry Oster, a pathology, pediatrics, and genetics professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. And he's the author of this book called Legacy, A Genetic History of the Jewish People. Yes, very interesting stuff, right? Uh, fourth or fifth cousins. Fourth or fifth cousins. Keep it in the family. All those stories about the Europeans 
um, intermingling, breeding, all that stuff. I think that's where we get that from, right? Because it is probably, in fact, true. <laughs> so, um, But depending on whether the lineage gets traced through maternal or paternal DNA or through the rest of the genome, researchers got very different answers for whether Ashkenazi originally came from Europe or the Near East. Past research found that 50 to 80% of DNA from the Ashkenazi Y chromosome, which is used to trace the male lineage, originated in the, middle, in the Near East, Richard said. That supported a story wherein Jews came from Israel and largely eschewed intermarriage when they settled in Europe. So yeah, that means that they weren't really doing intermarriage. Um, probably intermarriage with Europeans, I'm guessing here, but I don't really know. But historical documents tell a different tale, slightly different tale. Based on accounts such as those of Jewish historian, this, I can't pronounce it, by the time of the destruction of the Second Temple in A.D., six million, as many as six million Jews were living in the Roman Empire. Here we're back at Rome again, right? But outside of Israel, mainly in Italy and Southern Europe. Okay, let me redo this because I'm a little, it takes me a little bit to kind of absorb this, so. But historical documents, so they're saying that they have these original ideas about their DNA, okay? But, no, they're finding that this DNA is different than what the historical documents show. The, the historical documents tell a different, slightly different tale. Based on accounts such as those of Jewish historian, that person, by the time the destruction of the Second Temple in A.D. 70, as many as 6 million Jews were living in the Roman Empire. But outside Israel, mainly in Italy and Southern Europe, 6 million Jews, but outside, okay. In contrast, only about 50,000 live in Judea and Austria, who was not involved in the new study. Well, I don't understand any of that, but we're following the trail, right? Um, but what this signifies to me is we are finding, or they're finding, that there's a connection between these Jews in Italy, which is, of course, very interesting when we consider the Vatican connection, right? Because, you know, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, which is a Jew, so Italy's a pretty hot spot for us to be looking at. And also, it's one of the three things we're focused on now. Maternal DNA. Richards and his colleagues analyzed microchondrial DNA which it contained in the cycle oh microcolon DNA which is contained in the cytoplasm of the egg and passed down only from the mother for more than thirty five hundred people throughout the near east. Okay, what's he talking about? Oh they analyzed data from thirty five hundred people in the Near East, Caucasus, and Europe, including Ashkenazi Jews. The team found that four founders were responsible for 40% of Ashkenazi mitochondrial DNA, and that of these founders originated in Europe. That's over half the people they're finding originated in Europe, right? And that would be coming from the mother, because it was that mitochondrial cytoplasm of the egg, okay? Okay, the team found that the four founders, oh, 
region in Europe to other European languages. Huh. All told, more than 80% of the maternal lineage of Ashkenazi Jews could be traced to Europe, with only a few lineages originating in the Near East. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like 80% of them are tracing to Europe. Interesting, huh, since they're claiming that Israel is their homeland, all those Zionists, right? These people are pretty tricky. I'd be careful. They're pretty tricky. Okay. Virtually none came from Northern Caucasus, located along the border between Europe and Asia, between the Black and Kasparian Seas. The findings could thoroughly debunk one of the most questionable, but still tenacious, hypotheses that most Ashkenazi Jews can trace their routes to the mysterious Khazar region that flourished during the 9th century in the region between the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire. The genetics suggest many of the founding Ashkenazi women were actually converts from local European populations. Here we go again, right? Majority of the women actually end up coming from European populations. The simplest explanation was that it was mainly women who converted and they married with men who'd come from the Near East. Okay. Or it could have been an interloper at that part, right? Um, another possibility is that Jews actively converted both men and women among local, po among local population at this time, although researchers would need more detailed study of paternal lineages to test this hypothesis. See, all of this stuff is just now getting figured out. So, yeah, I would have to say that I would rule that they're already saying here that 80% of them are tracing to Europe, right? So, I think we can pretty well settle this Ashkenazi thing for right this minute. And I will move on to hopefully the closing is next. Or I have some other significant things about their history with Malta and all of that. Um, those will be coming up next. So, stay tuned. I am going to be summarizing some things and here's the deal you know I've said before when you know more you can look harder right because now after all these segments um, what I do is record as I go along and I am a hundred percent sure the people we're looking at are Ashkenazi Jews, Zionists, whatever you want to call them um, and it also occurs to me that because these are the people they would be the ones who would have been last in charge of the Bible, right? Because, and please, let's not get going on the Bible thing. I never read the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. And um, people have felt like I have removed them from the Bible, and they felt sad that, that I wasn't reading the Bible anymore. But I never have read it, okay? So um, here's the thing. They, um, they would be the ones logically, no matter what your relationship is with the Bible, I never have said do or don't do something, okay? Anyhow, so, um, so my view, the Bible is in these people's hands, right? The Bible also, according to them, um, there's supposedly 66 Bibles in existence. Well, that number 66 has, 
that that caused me concern way back when, okay? But I didn't get to the, my views of the Bible until I presented the evidence of what was going on with the Bible, okay? So I was always flagged by why are there 66 Bibles in circulation? And my other burning question from the very beginning, um, so yeah, I have been suspicious of the Bible really my entire life because I wonder how could something be true that had been supposedly rewritten so often, right? <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, because I always feel it's best to disclose my views on some things, and the Bible has turned out to be kind of a hot topic with people, some fear that I was taking their beliefs away from them, and that has never, ever been anything I've ever said or tried to do. So anyway, so, okay, so the Bible's in their possession. There's um, their possession because the Vatican, so now we know there's, they, they say, there's 66 Bibles in existence. Well, this was the last time I looked at people years ago. 66 Bibles in existence, right? That number caught my attention because these people are freaks for all those numbers, right? And then the other thing that really caught my attention and made me even more suspect of the Bible was the fact that there's supposedly a bunch more Bibles, okay? Well, who controls those bunch more Bibles? Well, the Vatican. <laughs> so, um, so, really, through all this research, I've also confirmed my own suspicions about the Bible, right? Because knowing the Vatican runs it seems to put it in a different light right now, right? Anyways, a um, couple of interesting things. Um, the Mafia members, remember, they're primarily Catholics. Um, and I did look up the, uh, because I, I make notes for myself as I'm going along, and I did look up the Ku Klux Klan, and they were not Catholic, but they had all those Illuminati signs and all that stuff. So they, they played the role of not being Catholics, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and I left a note for myself. Also, don't forget the circumcisions in this country. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Let me tell you. Okie dokie. Um, that brings on a whole new light, because I went back and understand things a little bit better. Now, I've talked about circumcision in this country in the past. Did I put it in the title of the show? I really can't tell you. Um, but anyway, so um, it, it's been in the last six months that I've been talking about my suspicions over the Jewish connection. And um, I've done a lot of shows about my, my, my looking into the Jewish deal. And um, one of the shows was about um, why... Why do Jewish people circumstance, and more alarmingly, why is the circumcision so heavily populated within the United States, right? That that started giving me a connection to the Ashkenazi folks and all that. So, um, because it's obviously, well, now that I know more, I think this rite of circumcision is some sort of transfer to their satanic rites or something. But I'll read what I have here, and if you have a better understanding of the Bible, it will probably make a different kind of sense to you also. But I just pulled up a few things, okay? Why do they, um, what they feel is that God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself. For the men in the audience, it may be a little rough to listen to. <laughs> so, when Abraham was 98, 99 years old, see here again, 99 years old, and now there's 66 Bibles, right? 99 to 66 flipped over. But anyway, so when Abraham was 99 years old, God appeared to him and instructed him to circumcise himself and all the male members of his household, including his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. After the circumcision, God sent angels to, to inform Abraham that his wife, Sarah, would give birth to Isaac, the long-awaited heir to Abraham's tradition. 
Now, that doesn't make a hill of beans of sense to me, but if you've read the Bible, it probably does make sense. I don't know who this Ishmael person is. I-S-H-M-A-E-L. Okay. But remember, this is their backstory. Okay. This is a story they have written to justify circumcision, is my view. Okay. So, the, cir the circumcision is called a Brit, B-R-I-T, or Bris, B-R-I-S. In Hebrew, Brit or Bris is classic Ashkenazi pronunciation. Yeah, why Ashkenazi, right? Means covenant and milah, M-I-L-A-H, means circumcision. Thus, Brit milah is a covenant circumcision, the everlasting sign of the Jewish people's inevitable connection to God. See, I've been suspect for a long time. I think when they when they say God, they really mean Satan. And we're in a dual world, so just, just think about it for yourself, okay? Okay, a Brit is generally held even on Sabbath or Jewish holidays. And then they, they do this weird thing. Well, it, it's interesting, okay? Um, and I put a picture of this chair over at the website because what they do is when they do this circumcision, they put a chair in the room because a chair is set for Elijah the prophet who attends every Brit Mila. So even though he's not alive, they set the chair there for this Elijah the prophet, okay? Um, according to mystic tradition, and this is all I could find. I don't know if this is true or not. If you know more, let me know in the comments. Um, according to mystic tradition, Elijah the prophet was very critical of the Jewish people. I vow, said God to Elijah, that whatever my children, that whenever my children make this sign in their flesh, i.e., whenever there is a circumcision, you will be present, and the mouth that testifies that the Jewish people have abandoned my covenant will testify that they are keeping it. It is for the reason the sages instituted that there be a seat of honor for for Elijah at every circumcision. So, I don't really understand. Some deal happened with Elijah the prophet, who was critical of the Jewish people. Um, so, now, all these people put Elijah's chair <laughs> when they're having circumcision. So, obviously, it must mean something, right? Okay, now, then I was scrolling around, and, uh, and who recommends circumcision? Well, who? Who are you going to call? <laughs> the World Health Organization. Although it is not the reason why Jews practice circumcision, it is interesting to note, because see, circumcision is kind of not looked upon very well by a lot of people. I'm not going to go there. I'm sure I talked about this when I was rambling on about it in the past. But anyway, so... Um, um, it is interesting to note that the World Health Organization, who are you going to call, promotes it as an effective means of combating certain diseases. Health, health benefits aside, the reason Jews circumcise is simply because it is a sign of our nation's connection to God, one that transcends the constantly evolving medical consensus or opinion du jour. So what they're saying is this between them and God, nothing to do with medical consensus, right? And this is this really got my eyes. Okay, for a male converting to Judaism, um, circumcision is part of the process. So if you if you're a man and you want to convert to Judaism, keep in mind this is going to be ahead. 
Um, which also includes immersion in the, all the stuff, commandments and stuff. Okay. In the event that the prospective convert, in other words, the male, was already circumcised, and it said, as in the case of the U.S. So what they're saying is males who convert to Judaism have to be circumcised. But males that are already circumcised are okay, and because the cases of all of the males in the U.S. So, yeah. We have a huge circumcision deal going on here. Um, this is also done for a Jewish baby who is born with no foreskin. Ooh. Anyways, um, circumcision is part of the conversion process. Is that the part where they're converting them from being a uh, person of our creator into one of them? <laughs> you, you just don't know because these people are into all this magic stuff. So, um, so they said the... Um, there is this thing. See, I don't understand who these people are. It says, the Midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H, relates that Turnus Rufus, the Roman governor of Palestine, asked the great sage, Rabbi Akiva, A-K-I-V-A, if God wanted man to be circumcised, why didn't he create man in that way, like already circumcised? Rabbi Aviva responded, because God gave the Isaac, who was the first to be circumcised on the eighth day of life. Well, I don't know. Because God gave, well, oh, because God gave the commandments that Isaac was to be the first to be circumcised on the eighth. So, so God directed, um, instead of making babies already circumcised, the, the story they've cooked up is that there was this commandment that God said that Isaac was to be the first one to be circumcised and do it on the eighth day of life. Well, I don't know about that. But anyway, so, um, commandments to the Jewish people to purify them. God has created an incomplete world, and man has been assigned to help complete the task. Now, what does this sound like? This sounds like the whole deal they whipped up right now with all this, uh, where you get assigned your birth when you're born. <laughs> so, yeah, God has created... An incomplete world. Well, their role right now is to be our creator, but I, I hesitate using the word God because I think it's Satan right now. But anyway, so um, so let me tell you how we start to isolate these people, right? Now, I have been tracking their diseases for a very long time. And the diseases I have been tracking weren't of Jewish people. It was of people who were taking hormones, okay? Because what I've been finding is that a great deal of high-level people were coming up with these different diseases. If you remember back, that's how I eventually figured out that cleft chin deal that they're all getting, right? Um, so all these diseases, um, I had massive lists of these diseases because um, I was finding all these diseases in a hormone, hormone connection to them, right? Um, you know, all the nerve damage stuff they're getting and the cancers and the um, all the things that they're getting, multiple sclerosis and that. And what is fascinating is that they're now calling the alarm that who has the most diseases? Well, the Ashkenazi Jews. Well, you know, here's the deal. Well, so that kind of isolates in my mind into because the Ashkenazi Jews are the leaders. Those leaders are all pretty much transgender. Do you see where this is going? So now they're sounding the alarm because of all these DNA kits and stuff, right? 
what they're finding are all these genetic disorders that happen to be 100% within the Ashkenazi Jew group, right? So you can start to see how these connections really come together now. Because I've been following all these celebrities and stuff with the, their diseases. Like, for example, transgender people get breast cancer. Well, that makes us think we're going to get it too, right? Um, they may be giving it to us, but I'm just saying that it's a hormone. It can be hormone-related. You run across people who never smoked. Well, that can be hormone-related if they never smoked and got lung cancer. Well, that's one of them, right? So I've been working this for a very long time on the disease angle, and turns out then I ran across a piece where all these Ashkenazi Jews just seem to have all these diseases. So I've got a lot of, a lot of data on diseases. So if you want more, I'm just going to give you a recap now. Okay, because these diseases all became suspiciously for Jewish people, right? And because I came at it looking at it from what's the impact of hormones right, on all these diseases. So a number of genetic disorders occur, occur more frequently in certain ethnic populations. In the Ashkenazi Jewish population, those of Eastern European descent, it has been estimated that one in four individuals is a carrier of one of several genetic conditions. Those diseases include Tysox disease. There's a whole list of them here. Um, Bloom, they have, I mean, cystic fibrosis. They have a lot of diseases, okay, because this, this, this whole deal they've been doing with the hormones and the, to make themselves transgender stuff is a living train wreck, okay. And hopefully I'll get back to, um, uh, you know, Facebook is where they're doing the embryo business these days. Because I've been following the embryos because they are they can't have their own children. So there's a lot of things going on with the embryos. And um, Facebook turns out kind of like the headquarters of that stuff. So I have a, uh, I'm in, I'm right now in three, three embryo groups, just kind of quietly, right? <laughs> it is absolutely amazing, the chaos, okay? It is just amazing, the chaos of what little they know. I mean, these are groups of people who are having to learn complete DNA profiles to figure out how to get IVF treatments. So, yeah, it is a hot mess. And look at them. When they start to turn 50, they just melt away, right? Because this is being all cooked up, and it backs up my feeling that, and my views, that I think I've confirmed pretty well here, that they have been, in fact, experimenting on the cells to begin with, right? They're just getting to the rest of us, which is... A, whole wide subject for another day. If you want to know more about that, just put it in the comments because, yeah, they have actually been creating a mutant class amongst us, so it gets crazier. So anyway, so yeah, so um, odd that um, they have all these diseases. Um, some of the, these diseases may be severe and may result in the early death of a child. Why do you think they developed, um, this is how they work, okay? They always um, create these disasters and then come to us to help pay for them, right? That's where they come up with all these children's hospitals, St. Jude's Hospital. Um, those kids in those hospitals, now I haven't studied every kid, okay? But there seems to be a suspicious amount of children with diseases that I can tell you directly came from hormones, okay? So, yeah. And what they do is they do these things. They're, they're experimenting. I mean, go look on, there, there, are, there are complete channels that have all the diseased children, okay? And they're, 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 what they're doing now is trying to normalize all of this stuff because they're putting it in their faces all the time because they are creating 
diseased children that I, I, I can't go there right now, but it is horrific, okay? You have to trust me on that one. It is really, really. What they're doing is beyond horrific. And let's not forget, these people grab every baby that's born and take it in the back room. So you don't think there's not any manipulation going on? Well, I've got news for you. Anyway, so where was I here? Um, that embryo thing, it just, it just kind of gets me going. But anyway, so, um, and that, that, that's why they always push the extreme, right? People were all into this transhuman thing. Oh, they're so powerful. They don't know what they're doing, kids. These people do not, just like the electric cars, it's all smoke and mirror. And they're doing it with real babies, okay? So anyway, so, um, yeah, so I was looking at other groups. Now, let's not forget the um, mafia is Catholic and Italian, right? Okay, I looked into the Ku Klux Klan, and um, the Klan evidently played controlled opposition because the Klan hates Catholics. Um, they were founded by supposedly a disbanded Confederate soldiers on Christmas Eve, 1865. <laughs> the secret fraternal society quickly transformed into a paramedical group bent on fighting reconstruction and the advancement of African Americans, Jews, and Catholics. Well, they were, the, the focus was the African Americans, if you ask me. But anyway, so, um... The KKK's decidedly anti-Catholic bent appealed broadly to Protestant America. Yeah, if you look at, I'll put, post it over on the website, most of the presidents of the United States have said that they're Protestant, but well, go look at their noses, okay? Um, yeah, if they say they're Protestant, that means they're a Jew. If they say they're a Catholic, that means they're a Jew, right? I think I've kind of proven that today, right? So, or in this show, but yeah, so... You, uh, you look at lists of celebrities, famous celebrities who are Catholics. Well, they're all Jews, right? Catholic is just one of the covers. This is a big, you know, big, big um, deception, right? So everybody's playing their parts. Okay, um, what they said about the Klan, because, um, you know, these other groups, Mafia, they're all uh, Catholics, but the Klan was so anti-Catholic. Uh, partly the Klan inherited the very powerful 19th century tradition of militant anti-Catholic bigotry, which presented the church as a vehicle for tyranny, paganism, immorality, persecution, and every anti-Christian force. The Klan rehearsed the ancient charges of American nativism about Catholic evils, including the Inquisition, the seditious secret oaths taken by the Knights of Columbus, and the conspiratorial nature of the Jesuit order. So much was familiar, but from the 1890s, the U.S. experienced a mass immigration largely derived from Eastern and Central Europe, and newer groups were heavily Catholic and Jewish in character. <laughs> so, Mafia. Okay, they're saying here they... Um, not the Klan re rehearsed the ancient charges of American nativism about Catholic evils. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what they're saying is describing their buddies, the Ashkenazi Jews, right? Including the Inquisition. This is this just oh, it's taken by the Knights of Columbus. Here we got some knights in here again, right? Um, yeah, we talked about the Knights of Malta and all those people. Um, and we got people coming in were heavily Catholic and Jewish in character. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it seems pretty obvious to me. 
Um, and then there was this thing that said, Mafia is now a genetic term for organized crime. The term originated among Italians, almost all of whom were Catholic. But there is nothing Catholic about its organization or criminal activity, which is deeply contrary to church teachings. Well, yeah, they teach one thing and do another, right? That's not too tough to figure out. Okay, um, the real power in the world, I gathered together some comments that were not insane, but seemed reasonable, right? The real power in the world is not the United States, Russia, or even China. It is Rome. The Roman Catholic Church, Vatican, is the single most powerful force in the world. Yes, okay, but we've also got the U.S. See, see they, what, this is how it works, and this is why I'm reading this to you right now, because they want people to be funneled into another direction, right? So they want people to think that it's the Vatican is the source of evil, right? What, what that does is that takes the U.S. out of play here, <clears throat> and it also takes the other groups out of play here. So um, just like the Roth, I've said this a million times, just like they want to focus everybody on those Rothschilds, right? Um, so, yeah, so they went on to say, let me see if there's any more important here, and we can just move along. Um, oh, I want to talk a little bit about these vaccines, um, because I'm going to post this over the website, because I don't want to, there's no reason to read something that's going to be confusing, so... Um, there was something that I found that was different. Now, these people have these groups where they hang around and exchange papers and stuff. So everything is always evolving because, you know, they get paid grants and stuff is really what it, it really kind of gives their little intellectuals jobs because they hang out in these groups. And if you go to these groups, you can find a lot of interesting papers there and stuff. And the whole idea of the groups is they do grant writing to get funds to do their little research projects and stuff. So it's really just a cabal, their little researchers and stuff. Um, and, um, yeah. So they, um, there was something new about the vaccines because um, I had told you before about vaccines coming from the cows, but that wasn't actually, that's been changed, okay? Um, and I'm going to put that chart over there that has this other stuff. So, okay, I talked to in the past about this Jenner person who, was involved with inventing the vaccine business. In 1796, English physician Edward Jenner infected a young boy with cowpox. Later, when he injected the child with a deadly smallpox virus, he did not get sick. Something else, right? Um, I think the young boy was about 12 or so, if I remember. Um, deadly, he injected him knowingly with the deadly smallpox virus, right? Quite a, quite a crowd here. And thus the first vaccine was born, saving millions of lives and immortalizing cows in public health. Because cow is derived from the Latin word vaca, for cow. And also, vaca in Spanish means cow. Um, or so the legend goes. But the story is probably wrong, according to a report published today in the New York, and I don't remember what the date is, I think it was in the last couple of years or something, but anyway, so... In the New York Journal of Medicine, that's because the vaccine used to prevent smallpox was likely horsepox, <laughs> not cowpox, researchers say. The latest bit of evidence comes from the historic containers. They, they found these containers from, the, from this company in 1902. I used to find these kinds of things at auctions when I would go looking for things to try to make money to sell on eBay. And, um, yeah, see, these things kind of can surface and change the story a little bit, right? 
So, yeah, they found these, um, a couple of vials which had had <clears throat> vaccines in them from um, this company, Mulford Company, in 1902. <laughs> Somebody was able to see on the label. <laughs> um, deception is kind of a pretty hard game to play sometimes, right? Okay. Um, and what they went on to say, so, so, so anyway, so somebody finds these vials of um, vaccines from 1902 and notice that it says uh, horsepox, not cowpox. Um, so it says, although the vaccine was manufactured more than a century after Jenner's breakthrough, it is the oldest vaccine strain analyzed so far. <laughs> I thought these people were really on top of this stuff. They really certainly are not. Um, when scientists sequenced its DNA, they found it most closely resembled the genome of horsepox. <laughs> Jenner himself wrote that he used material from both cows and horses in his experiments, and the new findings suggest that it may be horses, not cows. Okay, excuse me. It may be horses, not cows, that we have to thank for the world's first vaccine. Or perhaps we should say equizine. Yeah, pretty crazy, huh? So, yeah. <laughs> and they have just been basically randomly grabbing and jabbing stuff into us, okay? That is, that is the uh, very bottom line here, okay? And that's why these people are all full of diseases. <clears throat> that's why they, you know, just fall apart. Um, and you can also tell in groups of them. You can tell <clears throat> what kind of medical care they've had. Like, for example, um, JFK, you know. If you don't believe he's Jimmy Carter, you need to go look at the video I have over the website. There's only three tabs there. I mean, you can sort them out. Each show gets a web. Each show typically I'll put it in the show notes, okay? But I have a couple of categories just for research data. One is about, um, you know, the hiding in plain sight people, who these people are, you know, looking at their faces. I've shown you how their their chins are all screwed up, and um, yeah, so. This is this is a huge experiment going on, okay? A massive experiment going on, and that's why it's called eugenics, right? Still in action, still going on today. So anyway, so that's all I have for this one, I believe. I just want to clarify these kind of key points about you know the mafia and how how God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself. Uh, this stuff makes me very suspicious. So if you think there's any reason not to be suspicious, I'd be very um, very interested in hearing how I shouldn't be suspicious of all of this because it seems quite contrived and it seems interesting that the people who got told to do this were the Ashkenaz, okay, specifically. They didn't say, well, the Sephardic Jews did this. <laughs> they said it was the Ashkenazic Jews. So either I'm reading it wrong or it's a specific group that's doing it, right? So anyway, onward we go. Let's talk about the Ottoman Empire. I have been circling this part of the world, it seems like, forever. Okay, let me do a little bit of a recap here, because um, they say the Ottoman Empire went on from the, you know, very early on, okay? What I've been looking at is this, is I've talked about the Ottoman Empire because they passed, They this is what I think, they went from Africa through Turkey and the Ottoman Empire into India, either before or after. I, I think they went to India before Ottoman Empire. Then they went to um, Weimar, Germany, is where they wound up, right? 
and um, then here. So um, that's where I have their trail right now. And um, what happened in the, I was thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking because I have this idea that they seem to hate black people, right? And I also seem to think that since they came from the Middle Eastern region and parts of Africa, that a lot of these so-called Ashkenazi Jews could also have relatively dark skin. So how do you get rid of dark skin? Well, you have children with white people, right? So one thing I ran across ages ago that kind of filtered into my brain recently was, um, well, the Ottoman Empire had a history with white slaves. <laughs> so there you go, right? But anyway, let me give you a couple of things about the Ottoman Empire where we're actually officially talking about it here. Okay, um, what happened was, was that supposedly political and social instability in the 1890s created international negativity toward the empire. Boy, they really sure make a lot of friends as they go along, don't they? The Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, an uprising by Turkish nationalists further reduced the empire's territory and increased instability. Following the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire officially came to an end with the Treaty of Severus, S-E-V-R-E-S. The Treaty of Severus, what is that? I have to look this stuff up because, well, I'm not smart enough to know it, right? Okay, the Treaty of Severus was a 1920, that gets us right around the time these people were buzzing around Weimar, right? So they, they were having a lot of problems. They finally came to a treaty and said, okay, well, we're going to kind of end this little empire deal here, right? See how it works? So now we've got them finishing up the Ottoman Empire, moving into Germany. <laughs> so anyways, um, <clears throat> well, the treaty signed between the allies of World War I and the Ottoman Empire. The treaty ceded large parts of Ottoman Empire to France, the United Kingdom, Greece, and Italy as well as creating large occupation zones within the Ottoman Empire. It was one of a series of treaties that the Central Powers signed and the Allied Powers after their defeat in World War I. So um, the treaty was signed on August the 10th, 1920, and it is um, marked the beginning of a partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. The treaty stipulations included the reunification of most territories not inhabited by Turkish people and their secession to the Allied government. So it seems to me they made an agreement and um, they said that the term stirred hostility and Turkish nationalism. Okay, the treaty signatures were stripped of their signatures. So it was a big deal. People weren't happy about it, right? So they had all these treaties going on. Basically what they did was kind of gave the peep in a simplistic term, okay? We could go on for years on each one of their little crimes. But basically, what appeared to have happened was they ceded territory back to the, you know, the warmongers from World War One, and scaled it back, and now it's called Turkey, right? So let's get into the good part here, the white slaves. Funny how this works, right? If you're, if you're black and, or dark skin and you hate your, the skin of your color, what do you do? Well, I would think you would get a white slave, right? So the concubines of the Ottoman Sultan consisted chiefly of purchased slaves. And I do believe this part. It's not that long ago, right? Because we're just talking, you know, 1800s, 1900s. Um, the Sultan's concubines were generally, were generally of Christian origin, usually European or Georgian or Cisasian. 
most of the elites of the harem Ottoman Empire included many wives, such as the Sultan's mother preferred concubines, royal concubines, children, which were princes or princes, and administrative personnel. The administrative personnel of the palace were made up of high-ranking women officers. They were responsible for the training of the jarlis, they called them, for domestic chores. The mother of a sultan, though technically a slave, received the extremely powerful title which raised her to the status of a ruler of the empire. See, they obviously, and this is what I've been saying all along, that they have figured out a way to have somebody else have their own children, yet still call them bloodline, right? And here it, it says that to me, right? Because they got a woman who was a slave. She became the mother of a sultan because she obviously had children, right? And uh, yeah, so obviously her status went from slave to the mother of the sultan, right? And she was in charge of the harems. So um, one notable example was this Koshim sultan, daughter of a Greek Christian priest who dominated the Ottoman Empire during the early decades of the 17th century. So yeah, women played a very important role, but the women were actually, a lot of them were slaves from Europe and places a.k.a. white-skinned women, right? That is a way to tone down your skin color. And what was interesting, that these slaves were guarded by these things they call eunuchs, okay? And eunuchs were often from pagan Africa. The eunuchs were headed by this Khazar guy, while some interpretation of Islamic law forbade the emasculation of a man, Ethiopian Christians had no such compunctures. Eunuchs means they were castrated, right? Thus they enslaved members of territories to the south and sold the resulting eunuchs to the Ottoman ports. The Copic Orthodox Church participated extensively in the slave trade of eunuchs. That word is spelled just, you know, E-U-N-U-C-H-S. That's what they call somebody who has been castrated and is kind of like a uh, really low-level slave, okay? These people really have a thing for this caste system, don't they? Okay, so um, what they did was um, the majority of Ottoman eunuchs endured castration at the hands of the cops at this monastery. I can't pronounce any of these words. Slave Slave boys were captured from the African Great Lakes region and other areas in Sudan, like Darfur and Kordofan, then sold to customers in Egypt. Okay, so they're, they're castrating and selling these boys to be like little slaves, right? And they would guard the slave women. While the majority of eunuchs, E-U-N-U-C-H-S, came from Africa, most white eunuchs were selected from the Daeshime area. Christian boys recruited from the Ottoman Balkans and the Greeks. They were different from the black eunuchs who were castrated in their place of origin. They were castrated at the palace. So one group was castrated at the, their point of origin, meaning the black people would be castrated before they were brought over to the Ottoman Empire. And some of them got castrated at the palace. And many, a number of the eunuchs' origin went on to hold important positions in the Ottoman military and the government. So yeah, they actually promoted some of these people. Um, female slaves owned by women could not be available to their 
to their owner's husbands by law. That means that any child of a female slave could not be sold or given away. Okay, so slaves owned by women could not have sex with the woman's husband, right, by law. So if the child of a female slave, if a, if a female slave had a child, it could not be sold or given away. So that kind of puts us in a different perspective, right? Whereas the African slaves, they seem to take those children and just kind of fan them out wherever they felt like it. But they had, they seem to have some rules for this kind of a caste system, right? It also became illegal for her to be further sold into slavery. And she would gain her freedom upon her current owner's death. Slavery in and of itself was long tied with the economic and expansionist activities of the Ottoman Empire. There was a major decrease in slave acquisition by the late 18th century as a result of the lessening of expansionist activities. So yeah, they were slowing down. They'd been expanding that area for a long time, supposedly, okay. I would have to say I agree with the 1800s part. I don't know if it went back to the year 400 or anything, but... Um, War efforts were a great source of slave procurement. So the Ottoman Empire had to find other methods of attaining slaves because... Let me see here. What are they saying here? Okay. Wow, okay. <laughs> the slave deal is pretty big. Um, the Caucasian War caused a major influx of slaves into the Ottoman Empire, and a person of modest wealth could purchase a slave with a few pieces of gold. At a time, these slaves became the most abundant in the imperial harem. Caesarians, Syrians, and Nubians were the three primary races of females who were sold as sex slaves in the Ottoman Empire. Caesarian girls were described as fair and light-skinned and were frequently enslaved by Crimean Tartars, then sold to Ottoman Empire to live and serve in a harem. They were the most expensive, matching up to 500 pounds of sterling. So these three groups, Syria and these other groups, were the most popular ones. Second in popularity were Syrian girls, which came largely from coastal regions in Anatolia. Their price could reach up to 30 pounds silver. Nubian girls were the cheapest and least popular, fetching at least 20 pounds. The palace harem excluded enslaved women from the rest of society. Yeah, I guess they, they just prefer to capture them, right? So yeah, so that is how likely, and what I think very firmly, that this is how they would have intermixed their bloodlines. And what I find very interesting about this is they took these women in as slaves, these whiter-skinned women, right? And if they have had a ch child from one of them, how protected all was, right? It seemed like it was pretty systematic because that was when they were probably starting their breeding grounds, right? And this early castration, that could mean a whole lot of things if you ask me. But the point here is, is that it seemed like they were in there, they had those white slaves, and that's how they possibly lightened up their skin. You know, at this point, all I can do is try to capture as much of the details to come up with some sort of analysis. So I think this is likely very, very true, and that gives them their extremely hateful attitude towards their own culture and own color of their own skin, right?
segment, I'm going to be talking about a group of things. And what I will be doing is I made a PDF of my file because there's logos and things you want to take a look at if you choose to. I mean, it is your choice. I'm just providing the information if you want to take a look at it. Um, so anyway, so um, here's the deal. Um, there's this group in Malta, okay? And for whatever reason, they're referred to as the Knights of Malta. And for whatever reason, they have been on my radar for like the longest time. We're talking a few years now because I started noticing things like, well, the Queen of England, they wear these capes with the big Malta logo on it. Um, and then um, the one that got my biggest suspicion was when I saw um, Mandela standing next to Queen Elizabeth wearing the same cape. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> He's definitely one of them, right? And then the whole story of him being in jail and stuff became clear to me. It was all a lie, right? So anyway, so yeah, so I've been following and kind of, so at that time, I looked into the Malta thing quite a bit, but I wasn't really sure because I tend to follow my instincts when I'm doing research, right? So anyway, so I already had all this data about Malta. So I've been looking into the history of black people in this country, black and dark brown people. And so I was looking at the Ku Klux Klan and their history here. And basically just the upshoot is, I believe that this is what happened, that, you know, they did the whole um, slavery deal and then they uh, did the so-called 13th Amendment to put the noose around all of our necks, right? And what they did was, then they, I've already covered a lot of this, they already went into the Jim Crow era, so the slaves really never essentially got free, right? So I was watching this thing about the Ku Klux Klan, and several things struck me. Well, the Klan, in my view, became an extension of the fake slavery deal, right? Well, the slavery deal was right, but the fake freedom of the slaves, right? So I think the slaves were free, and supposedly... They use that amendment to catch all of us in the same loop. And then basically they, um, well, they tricked everybody. And they came up with a clan, which furthered the oppression of the blacks. And then they developed the penal system, right? So then they started just locking them up in prison. So um, what I'm looking at as far as this mass migration of people all over, I believe that's all planned, right? And I believe these people have never stopped moving people around by boats. For example, all the people coming over from Africa that wound up in Haiti, Cuba, all that stuff that I've already talked about. So they just do a continuum of things, right? Every so often they change what the process is. And they do something along the same lines, equally horrific or worse. So they've taken this boat deal. So I'm looking at these slave deals and all of a sudden when I'm looking at the... so so. I'm trying to figure out this immigration thing, migration moving out of Europe now with all these young men. They're, they're loading on boats and dumping in Europe, but that's a different subject. But anyway, so while I'm looking at this Klan stuff, I'm thinking to myself, why does that Ku Klux Klan logo look familiar to me? <laughs> well, because the Ku Klux Klan logo is uh, very similar to the Malta logo. <laughs> So I pulled up my files and took another look, and that's why fresh eyes always work, right? Yeah, we have. Because another thing that had been in my mind for these years was that they use the name Hospitaliers, okay? And I'll get into explaining more of that. Hospitaliers is what they did. They set up, they set up things. 
to, to, to help people, supposedly, right? And talk about evil coming packaged as help. So in the back of my mind all these, all this time, I thought, well, they probably, that's probably where the word hospital came from, right? These knights of hospitalier stuff. Anyways, this will all start to make sense in a minute here. So also, the same logo is the same hospital, same logo they use for hospitals. <laughs> same logo they use for the Red Cross. So yeah, so it's very interesting to me because it's able to, I'm able to pull together data that have been kind of floating around in my mind, okay? So first, let me, to be fair, let me tell you what they say about it, okay? Um, because people are very suspicious of these Knights of Malta, okay? Well, I got suspicious because I saw them hanging around with their robes, okay, with that big Malta logo and the Queen, and the Queen has given all these people the award of Malta, right? Um, if you're a musician or something, you get this special. You get to wear the cape with the Malta logo on it, and when you see the logo, you'll start to recognize it. It's just it's, it's like a cross, right? Um, and they always wear it on this black or red cape. Typically, you see them wearing the black capes with a big, huge, I mean, humongous white logo on it. So yeah, I saw that a lot of celebrities have gotten the Malta order. I mean, they give this out as a very high award. So that was a reason why it's been rattling around my brain for this long, right? Because I thought there's got to be something here, right? Okay, so let me read what this person said. The title is, No Mystery Here, Says the Knights of Malta. <laughs> and this is what I found fascinating, because the Knights of Malta are a Catholic order. If you remember recently, like in a show or two ago, I was talking about, there's three groups here. There's the Catholics, there's the U.S. as a war machine, and then there's the money people, right? So you got that those three things going. So they start off with saying, it's an ancient Roman Catholic order okay wait let me start over the title is no mystery here says the knights of malta an ancient roman catholic order tried yesterday to dispel the conspiracy theories surrounding it as it as it buried his grandmaster so they, they were some grandmaster had died okay they have all these same words that you'll notice that the ku klux klan uses okay like grandmaster and things like this okay Okay, so let me keep the article here. Try to keep my comments till the end. Okay. Princess Princess Michael of Kent, a member of the Sovereign Order of the Knights of Malta, was present in Rome for the state funeral of Fra Andrew Berti, 78, the Briton who headed the Knights until his death earlier this month. Giorgio Napolitano, the Italian president also attended the ceremony at the organization's headquarters on the Aventine Hill. The order, which has 12,500 members, was founded in the 11th century to protect the Holy Land and was a rival to the equally powerful and secretive Knights Templar. Okay. In the Middle Ages, it became fabulously wealthy owning more than 140 estates in the Holy Land and around 19,000 manors in Europe. Its membership was drawn exclusively from Europe's aristocracy. Aristocracy, <laughs> got my word pronunciation. <laughs> aristocracy, <laughs> which led conspiracy theorists to accuse it of being part of the Illuminati, a cabal of nobles bent on controlling the world. But today, the order has 80,000 members, 
have 80,000 volunteers working on charitable projects. Winfred Dunkel von Huber, a member of the Sovereign Council, said the order spends $500 million a year helping the world's poor. The only mystery here is one of history. Any organization with a thousand years behind it is going to have mysteries, he says. Albert von Broschleich, the Grand Hospitalier, said the conspiracy theories hurt the order's work. We have been accused of being part of a new crusade and sending mercenaries to fight in Iraq. This is not true. It endangers our helpers in Muslim countries. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. For example, I think these people, I thought this, I've said this for well, a few years now, these people have a definite axe against the Muslim people, right? Now, I believe the Muslim leaders have all been co-opted and are part of this scheme, but I believe there's a lot of Muslim people who, you know, read the Quran and all that, and these people uh, are not really pro-Muslim, if you ask me. But anyway, so, another story. But anyway, so, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's also possible that these knights, they say that they were they're doing charity work. Well, <laughs> they always tell us they're doing charity work, right? So, you know, it, it's a dual world. So, yeah. If you looked at this list of people that are part of this Knights of Malta, and somewhere in these segments I've got these lists of people, I haven't been able to sit down and go through every single person on these lists. But doing a spot check, it appears it's the same people that show up in all these lists, right? World Economic Forum, same same gang of them, right? That travel off to Switzerland and stuff. So, And they also all connect to this Knights of Malta, right? And let me go back up here and start over again with this. I'll pull from their wiki page what they had to say about it. And they said, um, and remember, this has been supposedly going on for hundreds of years, but I pulled up the data starting with like 1834, okay? Okay, and this is where my eyes about shot off, okay? In 1834, the order settled in Rome. Hospital work! The original work of the order became once again its main concern. The order's hospital and welfare activities, undertaken on a considerable scale in World War II, were greatly intensified and expanded in World War expanded in World War II under the Grand Master Fra Chi whatever, the Grand Master from 1931 to 1951. So, okay, what they let me try to give you a little bit of their history so I don't get everybody confused. I'm still like kind of rolling this around in my own head. The sovereign military, it's, it's called the sovereign military, okay? Hear, hear the word military along with hospital, this, right? The sovereign military hospitaller order of St. John of Jerusalem, of Rhodes, and of Malta, be better known as the sovereign military order of Malta, is a Roman Catholic lay religious order and the world's oldest surviving order of chivalry. Its sovereign status is recognized by memberships in numerous international bodies and observer status at the United Nations and others. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the Knights of, or the, whatever they're calling them, of Malta, they're over in Ukraine right now with a group. Okay, so, <clears throat> then I pulled up, I went back and pulled up a little stuff because this was real interesting about, remember, they write the stories, right? So, Whenever they come up with some scheme, they always have to then go back and cook up a good backstory to justify it, right? So, 
it's <clears throat> this is what they said about themselves. Knights and dames with a mission of care. Yeah, they call themselves all these titles, right? Knights and dames, D-A-M-E-S. In the 11th century, the Knights of Malta, known as the Knights Hospitalier, that's where I first ran into them, and I kept thinking in the back of my brain, <laughs> did these people create the hospitals? And I finally figured it out. So this is a big win for me, right? A piece of the puzzle fell into place. Okay, so the Knights Hospitalier established a hospital in Jerusalem for the care of pilgrims of any religion, faith, or origin. The work of the hospitalers grew in fame, and around 1113, Pope Paschal officially recognized the monastic community as a lay religious order. The Pope identified the hospitalier Gerald as the order's founder, together with an established group of monks, the professed who are still at the heart of the Order of Malta today. Malta, by the way, is a tax haven. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Okay. Through the centuries, the number of members coming from all over Europe continued to grow and contributed to the strengthening of the order during its presence in Rhodes. They were in this place called Rhodes, and I'm sorry, I don't know where that was, 1310 to 1525, and they were in Malta, which brings us up to closer dates, from 1530 to 1798. Okay. While members of the Order of Malta in former times traditionally belonged to the aristocracy, the emphasis today is on a nobility of spirit and conduct. The 13,500 knights and dames of the Order of Malta remain true to its inspiring principles. Summarized in the motto, Tutu I don't know what that means. It means... <laughs> And they, they, they seem to like Latin, which is all the interesting. I have to sort of sort of that out and out. But anyway, so, um, okay, that those words, to do whatever means. It means nurturing, witnessing, and protecting the faith and serving the poor and the sick, which became reality through ma throughout humanitarian projects and social assistance in 120 countries. These people are all over the place. Members must demonstrate dedication to these principles and are admitted by country-to-country -country basis through their priorities and priorities and national associations. So, there's three classes of them, okay? Always three, right? According to the Constitution, the members of the Order of Malta are divided into three classes. The members are to conduct their lives in an exemplary manner in conformity with the teachings and precepts of the Catholic Church and to devote themselves to the assistance activities of the order. Okay, the first one is, members of the first class are knights of justice or professed knights and the professed conventional chaplains who have made vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience aspiring to perfection according to the gospel. They are religious according to canon law, but are not obliged to live in community. So I guess they live out in the wild like the rest of us, right? But they're not obliged to live in the community, meaning they're not forced to go live in some, you know, missionary or someplace. Okay, the members of the second class by promise of the obedience, <clears throat> are committed to living according to Christian principles. 
Christian principles. I think they're all Jews, really. But anyway, so Christian principles and the inspiring principle of the order. They are, they are subdivided into three categories. Knights and dames of honor and devotion and obedience. Knights and dames of grace and devotion and obedience. Knights and dames in magistral grace and obedience. Obedience is sort of big worthy, if you will, right? Okay, the third class consists of lay members who do not profess religious vows or the promise, but who live accordingly to the principles of the church and of the order. They are divided into six categories. Knights and dames of honor and devotion, conventional chaplains at homem, knights and dames of grace and devotion, magistral chaplains, knights and dames of magistral grace, donets of devotion, male or female, I don't know what that word is, D-O-N-A-T-S. There used to be a famous English actor called Robert Donet, D-O-N-A-T. Very famous. You could look him up. Very, very interesting person. But now we know they're all liars, right? But anyway, so, um, okay. I, I pulled together. There's a lot of people talking about these people if you look around the right places, right? And they all tend to write in, like, really tiny type and big, confusing web pages. So I pulled out which appeared to be relevant to us here, right, without getting into any raging as far as... You know, people believe a lot of things, right? And they, they seem to want to pin all this on the Rothschilds. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you pin everything on the Rothschilds, maybe you never figure out it's really the Malta folks, right? So anyway, so, okay. The Knights of Malta is a worldwide organization with its threads weaving through business, banking, politics, the CIA, other intelligence organizations, P2, religion, education, law, military, think tanks, foundations, the United States Information Agency, the United Nations, and numerous other organizations. The world head of the Knights of Malta is elected for a life term with the approval of the Pope. Didn't know that. The Knights of Malta have their own constitution and are sworn to work toward the establishment of a new world order with the Pope at its head. Knights of Malta members are also powerful members of the CFR, which is the uh, Council of Foreign Affairs. Well, yeah, I think they bring up some pretty valid points here because it appears to me, and you know, it appears to me it's the same cast of characters that keep showing up in all these places, right? One thing I found out that I found interesting that tracks a pattern with these people, right, is that always look for those patterns, kids. That's the only way to figure out who you're looking for, okay? They had slaves. Interesting, right? Because I found a, uh, there was a slave revolt in Malta in 1749, which is very curious, right? Slave revolt. Huh. Haven't I been talking about slaves for quite a long time here? <laughs> so anyways, um, okay, the queen was, this stuff, let me, let me just back up here. Elizabeth II was Queen of Malta as head of the state of Malta from 1964 to 1974. She everything seemed to kind of revolve around the 70s, doesn't it? Malta was an independent sovereign state and a constitutional monarchy sharing a monarch with other Commonwealth realms, including the United Kingdom, 
Elizabeth's constitutional rules in Malta were mostly delegated to a governor general. So she was the queen of Malta also, but her rules were delegated. Malta became a republic within the Commonwealth in 1974, and the monarch was replaced as head of state by the president of Malta. Malta was ruled by the Knights Hospitalier and Order of St. John as a vassal state of the Kingdom of Sicily from 1530 to 1798. We bring the Italians in here, right? The islands of Malta and Gozo, as well as the city of Tripoli in modern Libya, were granted to the order by Spanish Emperor Charles V in 1530. So now we have the Malta folks um, being the Order of St. John under somebody in Sicily from 1530 to 1798. Maybe this explains why I keep running around on abandoned mental institutions that look horrific in Italy. Who knows, right? It's usually the simple answer. They just put up a very convoluted path here, right? Okay, so now I'm looking at all these logos. And the logos, well, I don't know. The queen also has a personal flag of Malta, okay? And on that flag also has that same cross. It's the exact same cross you see on the Red Cross, the, red, the cross you see on hospitals. It's always, when you look at a hospital, the logo is always red and white, right? Well, the Malta logo is always red and white. You know, emergency services, they use that cross. It's just the um, red cross, same exact looking cross, or red and white cross. So, anyways, um, there was a little history here. It said the Knights of Malta were not always called by that name. Look at the history of this order. We find three distinct periods. Okay, first it was called the Hospitaliers of St. John of Jerusalem. From unknown to 1309. The Knights of Rhodes from 1309 to 1522. And the Knights of Malta from 1530 to the present. The exact origin of the order is not known, but it is generally accepted that merchants from Amalfi obtained permission from the Caliph of Egypt to build a hospital in Jerusalem to aid and assist visiting pilgrims. However, this organization became a legitimate and separate order when Gerard, whose last name is never mentioned and who is later beautified, this person, all they go by is Gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D. This person was elected his first hospital, oh, erected his first hospital in around 1080, although it was not officially started until 1113 <laughs> with Pope Pascal acknowledged the group as an order. So here we have them. Now remember, I'm just pulling together the more rational explanations. Okay. <laughs> so, and they're looking at it from completely different angles. I'm looking at it from when did they cook up these hospitals and stuff. Right? So yeah, so according to their own lips, their historians and analysts, <laughs> They have them in Egypt building hospitals in Jerusalem, which I find very interesting. The main objective of the order was to serve and care for the sick and injured pilgrims visiting the Holy Land from Europe, of which there were numerous ones before, even before the Crusades. So their goal was to 
be nice to pilgrims who were making that long, according to them, because remember, they've been doling out technology and stuff, so they pro it probably would be a pretty rough trip to get from Europe to the Holy Land, wouldn't you say, in the year 1000? <laughs> so, let's say, let's say you're over in Europe, and you make a trip to the Holy Land, uh, well, that'd be quite a trip, I mean, I'm not really quite sure how you'd get it done, but anyway, I don't know, pack of camels or something? So you, you take this long trip, and who's waiting at the other side to uh, heal your injuries? Well, this group, right? The leader of the order was originally called the Master of the Hospital. But from 1267, the name was changed to Grandmaster. Here again, that KKK group uses all these same terms, right? The order grew as many... Oh, the order grew as many of its patients donated land, both in Europe and the Holy Land, as gratitude for their services. As a matter of fact, early documents mentioning such donations do not mention the sick, only the poor and strangers. <laughs> the order was also only concerned with religious conduct, and at first never mentioned anything about knights. Yeah, they're pretty slippery, aren't they? Over time, however, as the number of pilgrims increased, so did the need for their protection. For the, these people, it appears to me, they're calling themselves the Order and Grand Wizards and stuff, and they seem to be serving as some sort of role of protection, right? This is said to have been from the beginning of the military side of the Order. The Order's members were divided into three classes, and here's where it really gets interesting, okay? This is the same classes that I was just talking about recently, okay? With the deal with the three parts of this deal, right? Here it is right here. The Military Brothers, the Infirmary Brothers, and the Chaplain Brothers. Military, sound familiar? Infir so, so in this, the only thing they had changed, they had the Infirmary Brothers, and those are really now the bankers, right? Well, you also realize that banks, at least in this country, are actually run like business, uh, banks, excuse me, hospitals are run the same way as banks are here. And I don't know all the technical things, but I do know that's for a fact, okay? So this list makes total sense. The military brothers, the infirmary brothers, which are our hospitals, which are essentially run like banks. Have you ever tried to get out of paying a hospital bill in this country? <laughs> and the chaplain brothers. So that gives us three again, right? Um... The military brothers consisted of knights recruited from the Crusades and were called heavy cavalry. They were commanded by a marshal. Lower-ranking men were recruited from among the locals. Yeah, sound familiar, right? Um, those assigned to oversee... They have a name, I can't pronounce it. This, and this is where it gets interesting. This title is still used in the Scottish Rite Council of Kadash. Well, what's interesting is the Scottish people, right? Because allegedly, the Civil War flag, I was talking about that I don't, months ago, the Civil War flag allegedly came from the um, Scots, from the Scottish group, from the Scottish Masons, whatever they were. Uh, yeah, and these, this draws us into the Scots, right? The first mention of the military aspect of the order are found in documents dating from around 1200. Well, yeah, documents they produced, right? And identified two types of knights. The first were knights serving the order for a short period of time and were called secular knights. The second were knights who vowed permanent allegiance to the order and were called professional knights. 
As the order grew, they became rivals with the pure military order, the Knights Templar. So the Knights Templar is the one that is the military arm of this thing, right? It's kind of interesting. They have military, religion, and all this stuff wrapped into one little deal, right? Um, the, late, the order later enjoyed vast privileges like the Templars of being independent in spiritual and temporal authority except from Rome. I don't know what that means. The right to have their own chapels and cemeteries and their own clergy. Good for them, right? Okay, so the second period. I don't know if I want to talk about this. Let me see here. If it makes any difference. Um, oh, this is interesting because this brings them over to Turkey. Remember I was talking about the Turkey and the uh, Ottoman Empire. So, the second period is considered between 1309 and 1522. Let me check my time here. Um, yeah, I'll finish this one, then I'll close out this segment. Um, the second period, 1309-1522. Despite seven crusades, Jerusalem fell to Saladin in 1187, and the order lost all of its possessions except those of Principality of Tripoli and Cyprus. So obviously during this period here was at the time when uh, there's one possibility here too to consider when you're thinking about this, okay? They claim that the um, the possible claim is that there was something that went on in the Middle East between a black Jesus and the Jews, okay? And um, are these people even really the original Jews? I don't know. There could be two groups of Jews because they've identified two groups of Jews, right? So it could be that this group we're looking at, this Knights group, is a total, well, could be. I'm sure it's a totally fake group in this deal, right? They're the ones who have been shifting and changing their identities around through this whole process, whether it's a thousand years ago or 200, right? So that's who these people are. Um, so anyway, so they were in Tripoli and Cyprus, okay? They settled in Acre, which also fell to the Turks in 1291 whereupon they fled to Cyprus. The knights, the knight hospitaliers settled in the island of Rhodes in 1309. However, on the island there were few, if any, pilgrims to protect, and from this period on the order became more militaristic. So what they were saying is pilgrims to protect, meaning that medical services weren't that necessary, right? They became more militaristic. Another transformation took place. Although the knights were trained in, and experienced in land battles, in roads, the deciding factor became sea battles. In addition, with its isolation, the island and the grand master of the order gained much independent power equal to that of a small principality. Then the Ottoman Turks rose in power. This is where we start to intersect, right? Okay, the Ottoman Turks rose to power, supposed in 1480. And somebody attacked the island but was repulsed. What that means, I don't know. Then in 1522, somebody else attacked Rhodes with an armada of 400 ships and an army said to have numbered between 140,000 and 200,000, clearly outnumbering the 7,000 knights. The knights held out for six months, but having no more supplies, they surrendered on December 22, 1522. 
This person that was trying to invade them, Salomon II, S-A-L-Y-M-A-N II, respected their bravery, decided to spare their lives, and even made ships available to carry the remaining knights to Europe. That's how they ended up in Europe. Okay. And this last phase of the scam here was the third period, 1530 to present. Upon returning to Europe, which means they believe returning to Europe, right? The or because remember they had been hanging around Italy for a while there, right? Um, upon returning to Europe, the order sought a new base, but the times had changed, and no monarchy was willing to listen. Then in 1530, the order asked Emperor Charles V of Spain to give them Malta, which he did. So Spain gave them Malta, supposedly, right? Nice of them, wasn't it? So, from this period, the knights wore the famous Maltese cross. It is an eight-pointed cross with eight points representing the eight obligations and aspirations, which are, number one, live in truth. Number two, have faith. Number three, repent of sins. Number four, give proof of humility. Number five, love justice. Number six, be merciful. Number seven, be sincere. I gotta scroll down here without flying past this stuff here. Be sincere. Number eight, endure persecution. Okay. On May the 18th, 1565, this Sally Man person regretted his previous mercy. He regretted his previous mercy, attacked Malta. With it is said he brought in 38,000 troops and 138 galleys for four months against 500 knights and 500 soldiers. The Turks for oh, Saladin had to be somebody from Turkey, okay. The Turks first destroyed the old city, then focused their attention on St. Elmo, a fort in which some knights were holding out. It is said over 6,000 cannonballs were fired into the fort, and the fort capitulated on June 23rd after losing half its force. So it went from May 18, 1565 to June the 23rd, a little bit over a month. The survivors, 100 knights and 500 soldiers, were all executed. Their bodies floated in the harbor on wooden crosses to intimidate the remaining knights holding out. The remaining 300 knights held out against the harbor at Bergu and Sagade. Despite de desperate pleas to Spain, were finally answered when a large army arrived on the island and the Turks retreated. You know, those poor little Malta people, right? They always had to be the little underdogs, don't they? Notice the victimology in these people? What happens with psychopaths is they um, claim to be the victim while they're actively victimizing everybody else. That's, that's how opposition works, right? It's their entire business plan. Okay, so their main rival defeated, meaning that uh, they got the deal with the Malta sorted out, also caused the decline of the order. Having no one having no one major power to defeat, support for the order declined. This combined with the increased difficulty of recruiting new members, many of them having converted to the Protestant and teachings of Martin Luther caused the order to decline. Well, that makes it sound like it was probably in the early 1900s, doesn't it, with Martin Luther and all that stuff? 
Okay, these, like I said, these things don't always make complete sense. There's parts, 90, if, I, if I'm sharing it, that means that 90% of it makes sense, okay? <laughs> so, um, the Knights of Malta, as they were known, stayed in Malta until the Grand Marshal, Count von Hopsker, surrendered to Napoleon's army on June the 16th, 1798, without a fight. Many of the knights were French and had no intention to fight against their co-religious countrymen. The knights left Malta for Italy and constantly tried to recover their island of Malta. That's very, very interesting, right? That's their, these are their words, say where they went, right? And I believe this part to be very true. They ended up in Italy, right? Because I keep wondering, I, listen, I found so many, um, so many more things going on in Italy that I really have in other countries, is my observation here, okay? Okay, uh, in 1802, the war between France and Great Britain, Britain <laughs> ended by the Treaty of Amiens, A-M-I-E-N-S, in which it specifically mentions that Malta should be restored to the Knights. Okay, so they get this France and Great Britain, get in a fight, and it ends up being that Malta gets restored to the Knights. Funny, huh? However, before it could be implemented, France and Great Britain were at war again. The order lost all hope of retaining Malta with the Treaty of Paris in 1814, in which it was stipulated that Malta would be British. Ding, ding, ding. But this offer was rejected, as it would have meant giving up the claims to Malta. So, uh, Sweden offered the order the island of Gotland in the Baltic but this all so anyway so the Treaty of Paris got rid of Malta and Sweden offered them a different deal but they thought they took that deal they'd give up their claim to Malta okay since this time the order's headquarters is located in Rome the only place where the Vatican is right the only place like the US oh I don't know the UK and <laughs> Rome. <laughs> okay. Tsar Paul of Russia gave the order considerable land and in return was elected Grand Marsh Master in 1798. But the election was not recognized by the Pope and decided that he would appoint a Grand Master from that time onward. So from 1798, the Pope of the Catholic Church has been naming Grand Masters of Malta during that time, okay. He only didn't, I think, I think I found that he only didn't name the Grand Master for some reason from 1805 to 1878. Hey, who knows? Maybe they were just getting tired of making up history, right? <laughs> so, um, from this time, the military side of the order was lost and it once again became a pure charitable organization. Yeah, <laughs> so. It became a pure charitable organization at that point, supposedly, right? Well, let me pick this up on the other side here so I can get this downloaded. This is very interesting stuff. Continue on with Malta, and I'm going to be giving you some names so you can start to think about what you think about these people, okay? 
here was, um, I pulled up a list of the known grandmasters of the order in the year of their last reign. And here again, these notes aren't necessarily, you know, clean and tidy looking, but I, I make it, I will make it PDF and post it at Psychopath in Your Life. Just click on show notes and you'll find it right there. Okay. So, um, Oh, let me read this before I lose it. The order in 1994 was given the same status as the Red Cross and being an observer member of the United Nations. So, yeah, in 1994, they got the same status as the Red Cross. Nothing suspicious there, right? Okay. List of Grand, um, grand Masters. The first one I mentioned earlier was Gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D, and that's the only name they seem to have, and that was 1109 to 1120. Um, and let me move down here to get a little more current. Um, and here again, go look at the whole list. I'm not going to sit here and read things that you could obviously read for yourself. Um, yeah, it's a pretty big list. Let me get down to the 1800s. Um, yeah, they've had them from, they've had grandmasters from all over the place. Italy, Portugal, France, Germany, Austria, Austria. Um, the present is 1988 to the present. I don't know who this person, I, I don't recognize these grandmasters as well as I recognize the members, okay? If I had some research assistance, then clearly it'd be a good job to go through and look at all these lists carefully, but will I get there? Well, maybe, maybe not, but anyway, so... Observer members of the United Nations, okay? The following list of entries in intergovernment organizations have received a standing invitation by the United Nations to participate as observers in the sessions and the work of the General Assembly and maintain permanent offices. This is a big deal because, uh, for example, the Holy, the Catholics have always been, had some status there, okay? But these people, including the Malta group, have current status, and Malta has been since 1994, okay? So this pretty much puts them smack in the middle of the United Nations, okay? Uh, the following list, okay, Palestine is on that group. Asian African Legal Consulate, Caribbean, Caribbean Community, Commonwealth Secretariat, European Community, International Organization for Migration, International Organization a la Francophonie, you know what that is, um, International Seabed Authority, International Tribune for the Law of the Sea, and they also have divisions in there that have to do with sea, maritime, I mean the UN has it all under that one roof. Um, International Committee of the Red Cross is there, International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent. You want to look for a Red Crescent is the name the Red Cross uses in a lot of poor countries. It's, it's quite a, well, don't get me started on that right now. Um, and then, of course, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. It's, it's, not, it's not the hospitality. I mean, this name is right here. I got it from their list. It's called the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. <laughs> they have a permanent office of the UN. They're observer status, right? <clears throat> okay, so... Kind of puts them pretty in there, if you ask me. Um, okay. And I'm going to read you something that was written from one of these pages. 
that I think th this part, this segment of it made a great deal of sense, okay? The Knights of Malta is the lay branch of the Jesuit order. Well, yeah, there's that Jesuit deal and all that. The Jesuits are basically the Jews and the Catholics, right? So, um, I already read that part. The Knights of Malta is a world organization weaving through all this stuff. And, yeah, the Pope is at its head. So, that brings these people directly, directly <laughs> right next door to the city of London, right? Convenient, right? Um... And then this person went on to say, which is interesting, because um, some of these people are known as Jews. Alan Greenspan, or as members of the Protestant Church, the Bush family. Most people would not associate them with Roman Catholic organizations. Yes, they're hiding all over the place. They're hiding as crypto-Jews. They're hiding as this and that, right? But everybody at the top is a hidden Jew. Okay, that's just how it works. And here's a pretty impressive list, okay? We have a George Anderson, Admiral of the United States Navy, James Jesus Angleton, Chief of the CIA's Counterintelligence Staff from 1954 to 1975, Samuel Alito, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, this guy, Joe Alba, he was President George Bush's director of the Federal Emergency Management Association. That would be called FEMA. That's where we parked in all the Walmart parking lots around this country soon. And um, John Bolton is in this group. Um, Charles Joseph Bonaparte, who was the 37th United States Secretary of the Navy and father of the FBI, Pat Buchanan, senior advisor to Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, kind of top list, huh? William F. Buckley, conservative author and commentator, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Jeb Bush, excuse me, Prescott Bush Jr., Frank Capra, the American film director, they got them all here, right? William Casey, the 13th director of the CIA. <laughs> Michael Cheroff, second secretary of Homeland Security. Norm Chomsky, MIT professor. Um, Bill Clinton. I don't know. This list is really a who's who, isn't it? I'm just going to scan a few because um, Alan Dulles, fifth director of the CIA. Uh, boy, there's a lot of them. Raymond Flynn, 52nd Mayor of Boston. Rudy Giuliani, an interesting character, 107th Mayor of New York City. Now, Rudy Giuliani is the one who um, supposedly ended the mob involvement in this country, okay? We had supposedly all these Italian, Italian, hear that word? <laughs> Mafia people committing all these crimes in this country for all those years, right? And it seemed like the FBI never could quite pin down anything, right? Well, they pinned everybody down around 1990 or something. In, in the late 90s, the last mob person that's famous in this country, and I don't, I believe they're still in existence, right? The last known mobster that went to trial was a guy named John Gotti, okay? G-O-T-T-I. He was also referred to as Teflon Dime. Why was he called Teflon Don? Well, because they just needed to have so many trials to finally convict him. 
and they never convicted him on anything but tax evasion. But this is all drama, theater and drama, right? So they got Gotti, and um, then that pretty much was supposedly the end of the FBI, or excuse me, the end of the mob, right? The mafia, an Italian organization, I must say. So then what happened next around that time frame? What, what filled in the gap from them going around and thuggery with businesses? And I might have a segment on this somewhere in here. I don't remember. But anyway, so what they did was the money from the mafia thing was winding down with Gotti going down. Well, that was all planned, right? Because it was their trial, their deal, right? So this is what I think. How, how did they replace that cash from going around and robbing business. And remember, the mob controlled the labor unions. The mob controlled it all, right? They had their hands in everything, all transport, all cargo, everything in this whole country, right? The mob was in charge of it. Well, what was the next money grab? I would have to say that was exactly about the same time they gave us home computers. So in this doling out process, how I see it is the big robbery happened with the mob, right, for all those years. And, oh, we're helpless. We can't help you. The FBI doesn't know how to catch these people. They're just so slippery. We have to, we have to get people on the inside to control the mob. <laughs> well, they are the mob, okay? Uh, yeah, and so Rudy Giuliani, who's a member of this group here, was the so-called attorney for the state of New York or New York City, and he was the one who prosecuted the mob and Gotti, okay? So where'd they go next? Well, they took off their thug rings and their um, beating up people in back alleys, and where'd they go? Well, technology. They, they created the biggest pump and dump of all, which really made the mafia money look like small change, because with technology in Silicon Valley, they could create a much bigger cash cow than the uh, than they could do running around beating up truck operators to get their commission off of, right? So yeah, so they went where the big money was with the um, tech industry. Now remember, I have never been invited to any of their meetings. I'm just saying that logically, they always pick up the cash flow somewhere else. Like they never gave up the boating of people around the world, okay? Getting poor people to hop on boats to unknown destinations appears to me to be kind of their thing, right? So yeah. So the mob really rolled into Silicon Valley is the end of what I think happened. But, you know, you're welcome to have your own opinion. And I would hope that you'd be learning enough of this stuff that if you have a different opinion, let's talk about it. But I think they rolled from one thing into the next year. Another interesting member here, Alan Greenspan, 13th chairman of the Federal Reserve. Alexander Haig, he was the Army General <laughs> the seventh Supreme Allied Command in Europe. William Randolph Hearst, American newspaper publisher. Well, this gets crazy. And also J. Edgar Hoover, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I won't even get started on him and his cross-dressing and all that garbage. Okay. Lee Iacocca, <laughs> founder of Chrysler. <laughs> well, I think you're starting to get the picture. Uh, Joseph Kennedy. Joseph Kennedy was the father of the uh, Kennedys, right? Uh, he was 44th United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom. Ted Kennedy, Henry Kissinger, Oliver North. Oliver North was a famous case. If you're younger, you might look that up. That was a really, um, he supposedly got caught selling uh, illegal guns to the Iran Costa of your, <laughs> your government at work, okay? Uh, guy. For, uh, these people are just something else. President Reagan, Nelson Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, <laughs> Anthony, 
Antonin Scalia, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Well, it really does appear to me to be kind of like the who's who of the American echelon. For whatever reason, I consider this list to be highly suspect, and they all seem to me as the same group that's running around. Some interesting ones on this list that I highlighted, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> Frederick W. Smith, founder of FedEx. Uh, yeah, uh, so uh, this one person, Myron Taylor, American industrialist, and later a diplomatic figure involved in many of the most important geopolitical events during and after World War II. Yeah, George Tenet, 18th director of the CIA. Huh, Ted Turner, founder of TBS and CNN. It's quite a list, isn't it? Uh, mayors of New York City. Robert Zolik, 11th president of the World Bank Group. Start to fix some connections in your head there, kids. Um, General Westmoreland, commander of U.S. military operations in the Vietnam War. Well, it just really is a who's who. And then there are some famous non-American Knights of Malta. And who are those famous people? Well, heading the list are the Rothschilds. But we all know they're just a false flag here. But they're still part of the group, right? Okay, we have Kurt Waldheim, 4th General of the United Nations. These are people that are non-American, okay? That entire other list were all Americans, okay? Oh, one, one interesting one I didn't say was Anthony, General Anthony Zini, nicknamed the Godfather, special envoy for the United States to Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Godfather, okay? Okay, these are the famous non-American Knights of Malta. Rothschild, the, the original one, the Amschel Mayor Rothschild. Kurt Waldheim, the fourth General Secretary of the United Nations. Silvio Bellucci, the 50th Prime Minister of Italy. Tony Blair, King Juan Carlos of Spain. Right, let me see. King Juan Carlos of Spain. Heinrich Himmler, Hitler's Chief of German Police in the Reich Ministry of the Interior. This list is not looking real good, is it? Nelson Mandela. He started me on this whole thing. Thanks, Nelson, you liar. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, Juan Perón, 29th and 40th president of Argentina. You starting to smell some rats here, kids? So anyway, so I have a lot of interesting things over the look. I, I found pictures of the uh, catalog. Uh, I'm getting back to the Ku Klux Klan now in this last segment. <laughs> I started off this file. The title is KKK Logos, and then it worked into, oh my God, they're Knights of Malta. <laughs> so, I, I pulled up some interesting things. There was this catalog of the official robes and banners uh, from the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. KKK, okay, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan Incorporated. And that was from Atlanta, Georgia, 1925. And what really got me going was this. You know, we've been talking, I keep bringing up this three thing, the triangle, the threes and all that stuff. Well, looky here. The clan, I originally started looking at their uh, clan logos, right? Well, the, the, the newer clan logo is very interesting. It's called the triangular Ku Klux Klan symbol. Consists of what looks like a triangle within a triangle, but which actually represents three letter K's aligned in a triangle and facing inward. So they've used the triangle deal here again, okay? Just like that Illuminati deal with the eye and the triangle and all this three stuff. 
This is an old KKK symbol that has been resurrected by modern-day Ku Klux Klan groups. A variation on this symbol has the K facing outwards instead of inwards. Okay, the triangular, and this is what somebody said, I don't know if it's true or not. <clears throat> the triangular clan symbol bears a certain resemblance to the Triforce symbol that appears in the popular Legend of Zelda video games, with which it should not be confused. Well, I'll look that up later. Anyways, um, yeah, so the clan has one of their favorite logos is a very triangular one. Also, here's a key point here which I noticed on this thing, which got my attention, is this one logo of the clan um, uses a Scottish Rite symbol. Okay. Okay. The original, in the clan's prescripts of 1867, okay, the original banner of the KKK was carefully described. So they have this publication, and it carefully described this banner, okay? It's a triangular-shaped flag, approximately 3 times 5 feet. It was made of yellow material with a red scallop border about 3 inches in width. A black European flying dragon, which called, is called the Draco Volnus, V-O-L-A-N-S, was hand-painted along with the motto, here again in Latin, uh, and I'm not going to even try to bumble through those, but what, what it means in Latin, see, they have this thing about Latin for some reason, right? What, what this thing means, it says, what always, what everyone, what by all, is held to be true. <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. There are only two surviving KKK banners. One is owned by the His Tennessee Historic Society, and the other one, illustrated here is owned by the Confederate Museum in Richmond, Virginia. And on that logo, that dragon thing, right, you'll see that dragon thing all over the place. The Brits use that dragon thing, and more importantly, it is, I believe, that particular dragon of the same, is the same dragon that you see on these Scottish things, okay? So why were the Scots involved in this logo of the, you know, flag for the KKK. I don't know. Why were supposedly the Scots Rite Passage involved in the design for the Civil War flag? Don't know. Uh, somehow they're in there, right? Uh, you'll have to go take a look at these because their latest one is called the New Order of Knights. Okay? New Order Knights is their name. Okay? Knights. They keep saying knights, right? And... It has a spreading eagle and that cross, <laughs> okay? So, um, there was this thing, people, people really go on and on about these Klan people. When you start getting into uh, websites that talk about Jews, blacks, and the Klan and stuff, it starts to get a little bit crazy. But let me, let me point out some of the wording that I found interesting. And I found this wording all over, so it wasn't like these particular people wrote this and worded this way, okay? I kept reading about small splinter groups or individuals and they said that they're claiming to be the clan and they're calling themselves new ordered knights of the ku klux klan proclaiming themselves to be the blue tunic army 
They claim that their mission is to preserve the white heritage so future generations will know and learn from their history. They proclaim a strange combination of anti-Semitism, National Socialism, and Christianity, claiming that National Socialism is the way of the Aryan warrior, yet say their dedication is to educate, not in hatred, but with pride of the race that they are a part of. Not much is really known about this group. Yeah, they have, you have to, it just, I don't know, this all seems to draw back to them if you ask me. Um, okay. The Klan, as part of the broader white nationalist alt-right movement, made its presence felt at the violent Charlottesville riots of August 2017. They were flaunting a new flag design, proclaiming themselves the Loyal White Knights. The flag featured a light blue Confederate battle flag design, replacing the stars in the canton as it mimicked the first national stars and bars. Flag. Uh, they, they, what they did was they, they, part of the flag looks like the um, Civil War flag. They just kind of combined two flags is all they did. So, um, the bottom, this is what's interesting, okay? So they say part of the flag is this Confederate flag, okay? And the other part, the bottom red stripe, and I'm looking at it now because this part got my attention. The bottom red stripe of this flag also placed the Klan's blood drop design insignia between the word knights and the letters KKK written in white. Yeah, you'll see on these logos, they have a new logo which has a drop of blood looking on it, okay? This particular flag is used by the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, a neo-KKK group formed about 2012, which took part in the Charlottesville riots. Yeah, see, they're always reinventing themselves, aren't they, here? Um, they have a million symbols. They have the blood drop. They have another one, which is interesting. It's made out of three triangles, and it has it's slanted at 45 degrees with a blood drop. But anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, go look if you want. There's a PDF will be clearly marked there and you want to click on these show notes so we'll pick up with something else in the next segment here after I just finished the um, deal with the Malta folks I wanted to talk about the Jesuits okay there's a lot of Jesuits around okay for example George Washington University is considered a Jesuit college and a lot of these people went to school that were run by Jesuits for example off the top of my head I remember that Donald Trump went to a Jesuit school in his education process. So Jesuits are real big, okay? So let me read this piece. Um, I found this place called Brutal Proof Net. I mean, there's a lot of theories, but this one seemed to kind of say it the best, okay? And, of course, I believe this completely, right? And I'll just read you parts of this. Many people love to point the finger at the Jesuits as the cause of the world's troubles. The Jesuit order is a Roman Catholic order of priests and scholars. Their leadership live in the Vatican. 
The great secret, however, is that the Society of Jesus, that's what the Jesuits are called, they're called the Society of Jesus, okay? And um, the great secret, the Society of Jesus was organized by crypto-Jews. The Jesuit Society was created in 1534 by a group of Murano Jews, Ignatius Loyola, Alfred. Alfonso Salmeron and Diego Latinas. Okay, so that was the founding group. The 14, in 1492, the entire Jewish community of Spain, some 200,000 of them were expelled in 1492 out of Spain. Okay, amidst these expulsions, the tactic of crypto Judaism is taken up by many of the Jewish community in order to hide and evade exile and persecution. But the conversation is always a dishonest one, and they continue their Jewish practices in secret. The founder of the Jesuit order, Ignatius Loyola, himself was a crypto Jew of the occult Kabbalah. In 1491, Loyola began his subversive activities in the Jewish Illuminati Order of Spain under the guise of Roman Catholicism. Okay, so that connects them, and I do believe what this person is saying. And um, one thing they had a link here, and I'll just click open here and read what it says, because they're saying this is Zionism, okay? Zionism is who these people really are, and I'll publish a list of... It's really the same cast of characters, okay? Zionists are who these people identify in this hidden Jew thing, okay? So, um, well, wait a minute here. His link was full of <laughs> some something else. Um, they say that um, this verse is kind of interesting. Um, for many reasons, the attacks of 9 11 have inspired a lot of people to look at historical events. Um, Attempting to ascertain what sinister force lies behind such atrocities like 9-11. By looking, I'm reading from their page, by looking at historical events more deeply and with a more critical eye, many millions of people across the globe have come to know the truth. In patriot circles, it is often said that the engine driving the madness that has engulfed our planet since 9-11 is the New World Order. Well, of course, I don't agree. This has been going on forever, but anyway, so. A coalition of rich and powerful globalists hell-bent on transforming the world in a tyrannical prison society. This popular belief represents only a portion of the truth. This New World Order that is so often talked about these days is in reality a Jew World Order that is spearheaded by a contingent of psychopathic Jewish supremacists who aim to establish some form of world dominion. And ancient Jewish religious texts has, have prophesied. So they're saying that some ancient Jewish religion texts have prophesied that these Jews would take over and do this thing. Well, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Um, did I verify that? Do I know that's true? No, but it does have a ring of truth to it, right? So... Um, Superiors General of the Society of Jesus. Let's see what this guy says about this. Wow, this is a big one. Okay, this is all the, um, pretty much the same list that I talked about before. And what I will do, this is a list of the people from um, the Jesuits, okay? that's This is the group that's hiding around as Jesuits. 
So what I'll do is I will add this list to that PDF file that I'll post over there. And looking through this list, I don't see a lot of names that pop out at me, okay? Um, but there are some people from Russia here. There are some people, um, you know, going back, really way back, like 1600s. And off the top of my head, but, you know, remember, um, Pope Francis is also a Jesuit. That got me looking into Jesuits years ago. So Pope Francis is, in fact, a Jesuit. So that, to me, means that Pope Francis is, in fact, a crypto-Jew, right? See how this all works? So we've got the three organizations. I think this pretty sums up the fact that the Jews are running the Catholics, right? <laughs> hiding, as, hiding as either the Jesuits or the um, Catholics or something else. But anyway, so a lot of people tend to seem to think that the Jesuits are the one they're doing all this. See, this is how it works. Or they are also focused on the Rothschilds. But really, we don't know who the person is atop of this whole structure. But I'll guarantee you, these people that are publicly listed are not the top of this structure. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense at all, okay? Um, so anyways, um, I'll look through his list here. If there's anything that I don't already have on the PDF, but this list here, he has, it looks like the same list that I had before. So we don't need to get too crazed out over their names. Um, yeah, it's it, it basically just a more comprehensive list than I had over there. So um, I think that we're pretty much looking at the exact same people that show up time and time again. These same people show up at the World Economic Forum news things. They show up at the Bilderberg Group that are meeting right now. The Bilderberg Group is interesting. They just met recently for the first time in a couple of years. Another secretive group that I'll get back to talking about later. But it seems to be it's the same pack of people running these things, right? So you just have to start looking at the patterns here. But um, here is their doctrine, which is kind of interesting. It's the oath, okay? And I'll read this just because um, it kind of helps identify who they are, and it brings the, Scot the people from Scotland into this, okay? Okay, this is an extract of the Congressional Record of the House of Representatives dated February, 15, excuse me, February 15, 1913, where the oath is entered as purported to be the Knights of Columbus. So evidently this has been entered into the um, Congress. And this person pulled up this oath. Okay, so let me read this oath. And let me see what it says here. It says, I, so-and-so, fill in your name, now in the presence of Almighty God, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Blessed St. John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul, and all these saints, sacred host of heaven, and to you, my ghostly father, the superior general of the Society of Jesus, rounded by St. Ignatius Loyola. There's also a Loyola College, too. Is the pontification of Paul III and continued to the present. Do by the womb of the Virgin, the matrix of God, and the rod of Jesus Christ, I declare and swear that His Holiness the Pope is Christ's Vice-Regent and it is the true and only head of the Catholic or Universal Commonwealths and Governments and they, be, and they may be safely destroyed. Huh. Okay, wait a second. His Holiness by my Savior Jesus Christ, He hath 
power. Oh, oh, like they're saying that Jesus Christ has a power to depose heretic kings, princes. So that, that, that anyway, anyway, so you get the picture. I will defend it. I'm continuing. I'm not going to defend it. They say, I will continue. I will defend this doctrine and his holiness is right and custom against all usurpers of the heretical or Protestant authority whatsoever, especially the Lutheran Church of Germany, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And now the pretended authority and churches of England and Scotland. And the branches of the same now established in Ireland and on the continent of America and elsewhere, and all adherents in regard that they may be unsurped and her as oh, if they're opposing the sacred Mother Church of Rome, that's what they call it, Mother Church of Rome. Anybody who opposes that needs to be dealt with. I will now denounce and disown any allegiance as due to any heretical king, prince, or state named Protestant or liberals, or obedience to any of their laws, magistrates, or officers. I do further declare that the doctrine of the churches of England and Scotland, of the Calvinists, Huguenots, and others in the name of Protestants or Masons, to be damnable, and they themselves to be damned who will not forsake the same. So they're making a stand against the Masons and all those people, and the Protestants, right? Well, this is all cooked up by them. I do further declare that I will help assist and advise on any of all His Holiness's agents in any place where I should be, in Switzerland, Germany, Holland, Ireland, or America, or in any other kingdom or territory, I shall come to and do my utmost to expatriate the heretical Protestant or Masonic doctrines and to destroy all their pretended powers, legal or otherwise. I do further promise and declare that notwithstanding, I am dispensed with to assume any religion for propaganda. Yeah, they really, um, they're going after these other people. I do further promise and declare that I will have no opinion or will of my own or any mental reservations whatsoever, even as a corpse or cadaver, but will unhesitatingly obey each and every command that I may receive from my superiors in the militia of the Pope and of Jesus Christ. Wow, this is pretty intense, isn't it? They're basically saying that, you know, they're going to give it all up. Well, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to put this over on the website um, because they also have a um, oath administered to the, they say it's the Illuminati based on the oath of the Jesuits. Um, Thou shalt become a traitor or perjurer. Let his sword remind thee of each. Yeah, I, I think what I'll do is, um, because this talks about the faith and all that stuff, but basically pretty interesting stuff. And um, I would hope that you would go and take a look at it. And I will put it on the same file that I am going to be posting over there. It's going to be a long file, but take a look at it. Um, so... This is what I wanted to really point out, because now we're talking about magic again, right? These people are into magic. And this person quoted this history of magic, and they said, Eliphas Levi informs us in his history of magic, the Templars had two doctrines. One was concealed and reserved to the leaders, being that of Jonism, J-O-H-A-N-N-I-S-M. The other was public, 
being Roman Catholic doctrine. The Jonicism of the adepts was the cabal of the Gnostics, and it degenerated speedily into a mystic pantheism carried carried even to idolatry of nature and hatred of all revealed dogma. They fostered the regrets of every fallen worship and the hopes of every new cultus, promising to all liberty of conscience and a new orthodoxy, which should be the synthesis of all persecuted beliefs. They even went so far as to recognize the it's called the pan-aesthetic symbol of the grain masters of black magic. They render divine honors, honors to the monster, monstrous idol Baphomet. I've talked about Baphomet for ages here. So this is very interesting about this history of magic talking about the Templars. There's this scholar group, you know, all these analysts hanging around, and um, they have a lot of documents that people are writing about magic and money and all that that I have yet to get around to reading. But um, the mystic affiliations under the pyramids of Egypt, the esoteric sect of Pygothras, the astrologers or mathematicians of Rome in the time of Domitian, the House of Wisdom in Cairo, the Ismailis or Assassins, I don't know, Companions of the Old Man, I don't know what these people are talking about. But anyways, um, they say that these people all appear to form an interrupted chain of these superior affiliations under the name of the Illuminati, under the directing and power of the invisibles, earthly beings, masters working on the astral, whose self-appointed role was to be arbitrators and masters of the world. So yeah, um, these people... And I'm not going to try to explain it right now because it could make me sound even crazier than people think that I am. <laughs> but I've talked about some of these things in the past, kind of when I was doing the research about, you know, there's this place between heaven and earth or wherever you think heaven is or whatever that is, right? We'll just use that term for now. But um, so I think that um, the... Um, there's a lot of them that they, they have figured out a way to hang around on a different level, okay? When you leave this planet, you have a place to go, right? That would be our home, wherever that is. I'm not going to... We think it's heaven, but, you know, that's their term, so I'm a little hesitant to use it, right? It probably means hell, right? <laughs> so, we return to heaven, which is our home, and they have very handily convinced us that this is all there was and that we're, we're, death is it and that's the end of the road, right? Well, they have all these other beliefs. They have a very firm understanding that they have, um, they believe very much in reincarnation, but in order for this whole trick to work, they had to convince us that this was all we had because let's say that they were coming after us, and we thought that we might, if this was it, we would have a different reaction to being, well, this is not really my home, so if, if they get me and I leave this plane, I'll go back to where I belong, right? So, yeah, so that, that belief in death has been what has tied us to these people. And what really tied us to these people is the manipulation with money. Because without money, where would we be? Well... I would say we'd be like how we used to be. And it became fairly easy to trick a lot of us because 
where we come from, we didn't have any experience with money. So they knew all these things, right? They knew that we were basically kind and caring. So, you know, we became pretty much open to open targets to these people because we were thinking that if somebody says who they are, we would believe that that would be who they are, right? But these are a whole different craft of people. And for some reason, this is about a battle between them and our creator, whoever that is. And they feel like they can make bodies and they just want to destroy the rest of us. I mean, it's really as simple as that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something else. You know, a few years ago, I would have told you that I knew they were evil, but the sheer magnitude of the evil with all this going on is actually, you know, has been something that I myself have had to absorb because um, it's way worse than I ever, ever, ever pictured it was. So, but now that we have the pieces of the puzzle, it's, I'm not afraid of it. I like to intellectually know what it is because at some point, we're going to have to make some decisions. Uh, for example, if somebody knocks on your door of authority, what is your response going to be? I'm not going to tell you what your response should be, but I'm just saying that now is the time to be making decisions, not in the heat of the moment. Now, obviously, decisions can be changed, but if one of these people comes to your door and says, come with us, <laughs> what exactly are you going to do? So make your decisions based on reality, okay? I know myself, I am not going anywhere, okay, with anyone. So, yeah, so just make your own decisions. Think for yourself and look at all this information because I'm presenting to you the whole path of how they got us here. And to me, it's a fascinating story. And no, it doesn't drive me to fear because intellectually, we're all kind of attached to where we are because we have family here. We have people we know that we're familiar with. It's familiar here. But, you know, this is like a living version of hell for me. But anyway, so yeah, so I think that they are working on the astral level. And in my past, I did get involved with all of these things, not on a long-term basis. I mean, I tested it all. I went through the, you know, psychic things. And I went through the astral traveling. <laughs> I did it all. Um, so, yeah, I believe very much that we can do these things because they're also doing them, right? They just had to convince us that we couldn't do them. <laughs> but yeah, I tested them all. We can do it. Um, and obviously, I didn't stick with any of these things because that's kind of a strange thing to do. But yeah, it does work. And, and they're not, they have figured this out. Okay, let's just leave it there. And then if you're interested, just ask me. I will give you more specific examples of what astral traveling is like. <laughs> Some pretty crazy stuff. So anyway, so um, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is something else. It is really something else. So anyway, so moving on here. Sad to say, it's time to go, but I do have some very important things to say here before you leave. Hope I haven't exhausted you and given you things to think about. People keep saying how this happened. Well, I think I've been telling you how this happened. I'd like to add a couple comments here. Um, maybe think about what your thoughts are about death, if you believe that it's true or not, because that will likely impact your decisions coming in future days, weeks, months, whatever. Because the question will come, if you get a knock on your door, what is your plan? Obviously, all plans can be changed, but it's a good idea to have a plan, right? And um, everybody has a different plan. Like, for example, my plan is this, I'll tell you, but I don't expect you to copy it because I expect you to think for yourself. 
I'm already handicapped. I'm already dying, okay? I've been rushing to get all this stuff done before they finally knock me out. So um, my plan is going to be different than your plan. But here's my plan. Um, I had that knock on the door when we got hit by um, storms a few years ago. I've talked about in the past. The Midwest got hit by these horrific, horrific storms, and I'm sure it was to take down the small farmers. But anyways... And so what happened was my neighborhood was evacuated. The whole area was just dis disseminated. Um, and the uh, the levee went over, and luckily it stopped about two blocks from my house. But what happened was that they evacuated the whole neighborhood because of the horrible storm and the water levees in the area. And so the cops went door to door telling you to evacuate. Well, I did answer the door, and I said that I wouldn't be evacuating because of my pets. Well, that was already too much information, right? <laughs> so, um, next time, I don't plan to open the door. And I've already made the decision that let's say I do open the door, and um, they say you're coming with us. Well, I'm not moving anyplace, okay? Why would I want to go die someplace else right away? So... I, I, I can see no valid reason to leave my premise and go to some facility somewhere. If it comes to that, I don't know if it's going to come to that. All I'm saying is just have a plan, okay? <laughs> um, so, yeah, my plan is no one's taking me anywhere. However that ends up, I don't care because of my view on death, right? So, anyway, so what I'd like to do is uh, any clips that I've shown, there's one clip that's going to be showing right after, airing right after this clip here for the end. And the clip, I really want you to consider listening to it because it lays out the DNA that I've been talking about with these Ashkenazi Jews and why I think it's significant and how it ties them to coming in from Europe, not from Israel. I think the people in Israel are completely interlopers. Whatever happened in Israel back then, I don't know. But I don't believe that these are the true people that are the chosen ones. I think they chose themselves. <laughs> is what I think. But, you know, here's the thing. Everybody needs to think for themselves. Not enough thinky-thinking going on in the last many years and centuries, right? So I'd really encourage you to take a listen to that. Also look at the things I'm posting on the website. I don't post them to give myself more activities because you, sometimes a visual reminder will help. And Archie always posts the videos. So like the video you'll hear now with the DNA information, you will be able to find that clip over at the website because we want to document what we're telling you, right? But the reason we play it after the show, instead of just making you go over there and listen to it, is because everybody needs to listen to this and we're capturing it. So if that video ever disappears, we've already got it on audio, okay? And I've asked Archie if he would introduce himself. He's going to be doing that right now before the clip plays. Archie is a significant part of this operation here. If it weren't for Archie, you wouldn't have me. I endured some pretty rude comments from people on YouTube with crazy things. That's why I'm no longer there. With crazy things like, well, why don't I learn to do it myself? Well, take a hike on that one, kids. That's <laughs> not going to happen. So I asked Archie. He's in Nigeria. And um, he has done a wonderful job all this time. I've been working with kids on job sites all these years. And they've all been wonderful to meet and get to know their countries and stuff. But I have to say that Archie has really pulled it together as far as he knows all the things that need to happen to make this show work. I basically hand him this big file, and we don't, we don't do any edits. We don't do any, you know, I don't slow him down and tell him i got to review it before he posts it. So I just hand him a big file. Archie takes it all, puts it all together, and he uploads it. 
And I don't ever hear the whole show until he's all the way done. So I just hope I've said the right thing. <laughs> no, I've never over-edited myself in all these years. People on YouTube had all kinds of great suggestions for me. Things like, well, you know, when you pause, you really need to cut that air out to make the show shorter. Well, I'm done with all that kind of feedback. So anyway, so you get my point. So anyway, so that's how Archie and I work together. So it's about time that you meet Archie and hear from him because Archie is integral and we need help to support for Archie. So anyways, and then stick around for that ending clip and I will see you soon. I, I try to not say what I'm going to be working on next because every time I go off to head to do those movie stuff, <laughs> I was just going to look at, uh, what was I going to look at? Well, I started looking at Ottoman Empire, and then I got into the Malta thing, and I thought, wow, there it is. I confirmed it. And then, all of a sudden, before I knew it, I was off with the Ashkenazi Jews. <laughs> it's a work in progress. So, I believe my next juncture is going to be the Black Nobility Group, because talk about, well, criminal organizations. But anyway, so, enough of that. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope that you're able to... Um, Think a little bit more about what your next thing is going to be. Are you going to be willing to leave your property to go with them? What are, you, what are your plans, okay? That's all you need to be thinking about are what are your plans. So anyway, so i got to close for now. And be safe out there, kids. Talk to you later. Goodbye for now. Listener. My name is Archie. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards the show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce the show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep the show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you. Everybody has heard of Tay-Sachs disease, which is the original disease for which screening became available in the early 1970s. Uh, the first testing was done by an enzyme assay, and that was a very much a grassroots ac um, activity in the Jewish community where thousands turned out to be screened. And since that time, the number of babies born with Tay-Sachs disease in the Jewish community has decreased by 90%. It was a very effective campaign. It still is a well-known disease, and pretty much everybody of Jewish descent knows that they should be screened, and so do their doctors. 
The problem with Tay-Sachs is that it is not just a Jewish disease. It occurs in other communities, and with intermarriage that is becoming more of an issue because some places screen only with DNA testing, and the DNA testing has mutations or gene alterations that are geared to the Jewish community and not the community in general, not the general population. So if someone who is not Jewish is screened without the enzyme, you could miss that person as being a carrier. And one of the things we're undertaking in our department here right now is a research study in the Irish community because we have seen a number of babies born with Tay-Sachs disease to Irish families in Philadelphia and we want to establish the carrier rate for Tay-Sachs in the Irish and then provide guidelines for screening the Irish population. It also occurs in the French Canadians and Cajun populations. So my feeling is that ultimately Tay-Sachs, while it is considered a Jewish genetic disease, really should be one where the population is screened with the enzyme test, which is not a difficult test and not a very expensive test. So that is the most well-known of the Jewish genetic diseases. But Gaucher disease is the most common Jewish genetic disease with a carrier rate of 1 in 15. And that disease it's important to know about because there are potential treatments for that disease. So it may actually be more suitable for newborn screening to find children with Gaucher disease and then to monitor them and ultimately treat them if they need it. But it's a very variable condition, can be very severe. So we do screen for that. And that's another reason why we do counseling because in the course of our screening, we have actually identified two healthy young adults with Gaucher disease who are both referred for treatment and monitoring. Uh, familial dysautonomia is another common Jewish genetic disease. It can also be very severe. Uh, people can live to their 40s and 50s with it, but they get extremely sick quite frequently and end up in the hospital. And many of them are significantly disabled. As they get older, they begin to have vision problems, kidney problems. They always have problems with their uh, regulation of body functions like blood pressure, heart rate, and they can have crises. And nobody really understands why these crises develop, but they get really sick with high temperature, high blood pressure, high heart rate, and often that can lead to hospitalizations. So the diseases are variable. We have selected diseases based on criteria provided through the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, where the diseases are severe, the carrier rate is greater than 1 in 100 in the Jewish community, and the detection rate is over 90%. So we give consideration to a lot of different diseases and only select ones for which there is a good reason to do the screening, which we recommend preconceptually as in before you get pregnant and preferably at the time or before you get married so that you and your partner know what your status is.